Hey, Twisted History listeners, you can find us every Wednesday night on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. For us, golf is simple. It's a chance to get out and have some fun with our friends. But inevitably, little things have a way of ruining it. The group ahead is taking forever. You can't find the fairway with a map. And the Bev cart is nowhere to be found. And the best way to make a bad day better is Fireball Whiskey. You get their nips, the little shooters. They are great. Makes a bad day way, way, way better. Make sure to grab the new Fireball Birdie Shot Club. It's literally a golf club filled with Fireball nips. Put it in your bag. It'll fit right in that side pocket. Drink Fireball nips and have a great time on the golf course. All right, everybody, welcome on back. This is Twisted History. This is the best of Twisted History because it's 4th of July week. Vibs is in Indiana. I'm in um, I'm in Vegas. John, you're, where are you going? Are you going to Pennsylvania now? I'm going to Maine. You're going to Maine? And then Maine. where is the Connor fight next week? Uh, Vegas. Okay. See you. Yeah, me and Robbie Fox. It's kind of it's sexy. So anyway, we had a big year this year with Twisted History. We did a ton of them, so we're going to go through a lot of the shit. We had the cryptocurrency one, which was very good. Uh, we had Rob O'Neill on for killing uh, Osama bin Laden. We had the twins. We had the Pope. We had animal attacks. I can't remember all the shit that we've done. I can't remember it. Uh, we did one. Was it radiation? That was... One of my favorites. We're yeah. talking about like the effects of radiation and yeah, yeah. weapons and stuff like that. The like Twisted History drunks. Yeah. The Twisted History drunks. The that was, Irish. That hit a little too close to home. I didn't like that. <laughs> yeah. Twisted History tattoos where we had BZ Elliott on. Crypto was good. Hockey was good with uh, with Rear Ads. Yes. Yeah, that was I, good. I could just listen to Rear Ad talk. Just, he could talk I about anything. He could so read the much. phone book. But um, yeah, cryptocurrency one made me feel smarter than any episode has made me feel. Yeah. I feel like I finally have a grasp on what like Bitcoin and you or whatever are ethereum yeah well, maybe I don't, and i'll tell I don't you know what them. the guy that we had on sam i had said to him are we in a bubble he's like maybe and i'm telling you right after we we released that thing the bubble popped a little bit you know so it's it's you know particularly on bitcoin so it's one of those things where it's an interesting one and i almost did it to make up for not tweeting uh, during the tournament. For March like, Madness, yeah. Yeah, and it wound up being one of the more interesting ones we did. So anyway, John's called together all the best of the stuff that we've done as of late. I hope you guys enjoy it. And as always, we have this presenting sponsor we're very proud of, and it's 3Chi. Just know that while we're on vacation, I know that individually all three of us will have done 3Chi. For me, it's for flights, and I think for everybody else, it's just for regular life. It doesn't really matter. It makes everything better. So we tell you all the time, the number three, CHI. 3chi.com. Go to 3chi.com right now. Go and try out their Delta 8 products. You can get the gummies, the tinctures, the oils, but we're saying try the edibles too. The cookie is all right. The Rice Krispie Treat is all right. They call it a cereal bar. The brownie is fantastic. So go there and get them. The brownie with an ice cold glass of milk is, is one of the best ways that you can do something. Right, you yeah, agree with that one hundred percent, thousand percent. Agree yeah, with that. you're half my weight, so we're going. Yeah. We're going both. You know, don't be like, oh, the fat guy told me to eat it. Um, so go to threechi.com, get any of their Delta Eight products, and you're going to use the code Twisted Twenty Twenty One at checkout to receive five percent off your order. We all love it, and we really appreciate them being our uh, our sponsor. So please support Three Chi often and enjoy the best of Twisted history. Happy Fourth of July! Boom. Here is a bulletin from Kennedy's Motorcade. Seven, six, we have main engine start. Gutted shells of buildings, flames raging out of control. The devastation is so widespread. Follow the security alert earlier this morning. It is July 20th, 1969. Breaking news, major corruption crackdown going down. Time to make up your mind about people as never. 
Sonny, there's only one word to describe what's happening, and that is panic. The description on one wire service, master strip criminal. Cosmopolitan, yes or no, Phipps? It's probably the most famous uh, vodka drink, right? Cosmopolitan? I think so. Because a screwdriver, you're not going out at night and getting a screwdriver. Unless you're a psycho. (laughs) No, I I agree with you 100%. I think arguably a vodka soda is probably what people's go-to is. But I don't consider that really a mixed drink. I think a mixed drink has to have three or four, um, you know, ingredients to it. A martini does not. So I think as far as a vodka mixed drink, I think a Cosmo's got to be up there as one or two. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I wouldn't go just a straight Cosmo. Is an Apple Teeny still considered a Cosmo? If I had to go no, one or the other, I'd go, to Ap- I'd go Apple Teeny. You, you go Apple Teeny? I, I like Apple. Oh, I love Apple. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm allergic to Apple. We're going to talk about Apple Teenies. Hell yeah. But first I get to that, I'm going to go White Russian. You white Russian guy? Not really. I, I mean, I'm I'm a dude. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not a white Russian guy. <laughs> John is a white Russian guy. I was never a white Russian guy. I ordered one in a restaurant the other day, not the other day, earlier this year, and I thought it was pretty fantastic. The drink was conceived in 1949 when Gustav Topps, a Belgian barman, created the cocktail along with its sister cocktail, the Black Russian which is just a white Russian without any cream, at the Hotel Metropole in Brussels to honor American socialite Perla Mester. This young lady was the U.S. ambassador to Luxembourg at the time. Neither drink is Russian in origin. For some reason, we're very down on the Russians in this uh, podcast. I apologize. Um, but both are named because vodka is the primary ingredient. It's made of vodka, fresh cream, and Kahlua, which is a coffee liqueur. The White Russian it was lapsing into obscurity before Jet Bridges, his character, the dude, made it popular again in uh, The Big Lebowski. And January, I think, 7th is National Milk Day. So I would celebrate that with a White Russian because that's about as close as I could fucking get it. I don't like da- I don't like my dairy being mixed with my alcohol. I'm just... You don't like... Okay. Uh, that's, then you're going to hate the end of this podcast. Yeah, because yeah, we've got a couple of things that are just absolutely... Uh, Terrible. Um, the sidecar was a jazz age staple that was allegedly invented at Harry's Bar in Paris. The story goes that during the, elder, the end of World War One, an American captain would arrive at the bar in a motorcycle that had a sidecar. One cold night, he came in and asked for something to warm him up. So the bartender mixed warming brandy with Cointreau and lemon juice and named the drink after the captain's preferred method of transportation. It's a cute story. It's named after a guy who used to ride in a motorcycle with a sidecar. The Manhattan, which I've always considered a martini for those who like whiskey over either gin or vodka. It's whiskey, vermouth, bitters, and is often served with a maraschino cherry as a garnish. The exact origin of the drink is unknown, but long before the Second World War, Winston Churchill's mother lived in the United States. And according to the stories, she had quite the sweet tooth and the drink was invented to fit her palate. So there is a rumor that the Manhattan was created for Winston Churchill's mother. That's something I think I should know. You Manhattan guy? No. Uh, I ordered a Manhattan when I like first turned 21 in a restaurant, assuming it was going to be this big mixed drink. It's pretty much just straight bourbon. It's it's a lot. It'll put some hair <laughs> on your chest. It's it's not good. I don't think. The Moonwalk, I've never had. In 1969, legendary bartender Joe Gilmore created this drink to celebrate the first moon landing and his mix of grapefruit juice, Grand Marnier, 
Rosewater, and Champagne was sent to the Apollo 11 astronauts upon their arrival back to Earth, and it was the first thing that they had after leaving quarantine. Apollo 11 astronauts, as soon as they came out of quarantine, first thing they had was a moonwalk in 1969. The Mojito, a rum-based cocktail. It's been popular with sailors. They said that it was made to fight scurvy because it had mint leaf and lime juice and all that stuff in it. Nobody knows, but it's very popular with sailors, so some people think it has some sort of scurvy-type relationship. July 11th is National Mojito Day. Sex on the Beach was invented during spring break in 1987 when Peach Schnapps was having a contest. Which distributor could sell the most Peach Schnapps? So some guy down in spring break in 1987 decided to make up a drink with vodka, orange juice, grenadine, and he dubbed it Sex on the Beach, and college kids went fucking bananas for it, so he won $1,000 and Sex on the Beach was born. Mint Julep, the Kentucky Derby, uh, Kentucky Derby, the Kentucky Derby staple, begins with a bourbon base flavored with sugar and mint, and the name goes back to the 1400s. The term julep has Persian roots. Its pronunciation of gulab essentially means sweetened rose water. That term translated to julab in classical Arabic and eventually into Latin as julepium. And eventually that word just got cut down to julep. So mint julep has a name that dates all the way back to the 1400s. And May 30th is National Mint Julep Day. Pina Colada, the Spanish name, it roughly translates to strained pineapple. It was born in Puerto Rico and became their national drink. The Pina Colada is the national drink of Puerto Rico, has been since 1978. Ramon Manchito Marrero is a bartender in the Carib Hotel in San Juan. He first developed the recipe in 1954. Uh, it's rum, coconut cream, and pineapple juice. Other people think that other bartenders in Puerto Rico had made this thing. It really doesn't matter to me. July 10th is National Pina Colada Day. I hope people are writing all this shit down. The martini, typically made with either gin or vodka with a dash of vermouth. The martini is widely believed to have gotten its name simply because martini and Rossi was the most popular vermouth of the time. So people just named it after martini and Rossi. June 19th is a very important day for me. I celebrate it every year. It's National Martini Day, which leads to the bastardized version, which is the Appletini. The Appletini is one of the world's most popular cocktails. And it's also probably one of the youngest. It was invented at a 4th of July party at a restaurant in West Hollywood when a bartender named Adam decided to mix the Kuiper's apple schnapps with vodka. And the drink was an instant hit. And it was initially called Adam's Apple. But as word spread of the drink, it was eventually redubbed the Apple Teeny. And it's one of Vibs's favorite drinks uh, if I was a Sex in the City character, I'd be up at the bar getting apple teenies and blowing dudes left and right. Just <laughs> I went to uh, Keen's Chop House uh, a couple of weeks ago with James Harrison, won two Super Bowls. No big deal. So it was me, Willie, and James Harrison. Me and Willie are drinking martinis and eating mutton chops. And James Harrison is drinking apple teenies, but he ordered them doubles and in a rocks glass, that way nobody thought that he was drinking because he didn't want like the thing. I said, James, you think people think it's fucking Gatorade? It's like this lime green mixture. He thought he was, he's fooling everybody. Unless you put it in like a to-go coffee cup, people are going to know. But he had like five or six of them. So the only people I know who drinks uh, Appletini's on the reg, James Harrison, 
Jeff Fibber. Say, say something to one of us. <laughs> yeah, it does. Two theories on how the margarita became to be. Bartender Carlos Danny Herrera supposedly thought up this drink in 1938 in Tijuana, Mexico. He created it for someone named Marjorie King, who was an aspiring actress who said she was allergic to everything but tequila. So after some crafting, the bartender came up with this drink and he dubbed the drink the margarita, which is a Spanish twist on the name Marjorie. And that came out from the Los Angeles Times. The second theory on how the margarita got its name was there's an old drink called the Daisy. The Daisy is a mix of brandy, triple sec, and lemon juice. And according to legend, one day a bartender in Tijuana was making a Daisy and he accidentally grabbed a bottle of tequila instead of brandy. The accident became a hit at the bar and was quickly dubbed a margarita. And if you look up What's the Spanish word for daisy, the flower? The Spanish word for daisy is margarita. I didn't know that, and now you do. Either way, February 22nd is National Margarita Day. And we're going to end this with a trio of brunch drink uh, drinks. When you go to brunch, what do you order? What do you order when you go to brunch? The mimosas are the big ones. Sometimes people order bellinis, the Italian ones, which is uh, peach puree and prosecco. A lot of girls like it. It's named for a piece of high art. A Venetian bartender came up with the cocktail during the 1930s. When he made it, he said the drink's pink shade reminded him of the color of a saint's tunic in a painting by Italian Renaissance artist Giovanni Bellini. So it was called the Bellini. It's got a little bit of a classy history to it. The mimosa, which you guys drink a lot, is equal parts sparkling wine, champagne, and fruit juice. So it's usually champagne and orange juice. A mimosa is likely named after a pretty plant. Acacia delbata or mimosa trees grow bright orange yellow flowers that happen to be the same color as mixed champagne and orange juice. May 16th, John, write that down, is National Mimosa Day. And then final for uh, brunch drinks, there's the Bloody Mary. I think that might be one of the more popular brunch drinks also. I was going to do a Bloody Mary day on um, Barstool Breakfast. Winds up the six or seven guys that work on that crew. Nobody likes Bloody Marys except for me. They're, you, they're loathed. I think we've spoke about Bloody Marys on this podcast before. I like them, but a lot of people don't. The origin of the drink is unclear. One of them involves an American bartender at Harry's New York Bar, which is actually in Paris, France. The bartender supposedly was the first to develop this drink, served this cocktail to a patron who dubbed it the Bucket of Blood. He apparently suggested the name because it reminded him of the Bucket of Blood nightclub in Chicago, and some believe this is the name that developed into the Bloody Mary. Another supposed origin of the cocktail involves an early Smirnoff campaign from the Hubline company people that we already know and love. And the most popular origin tale of the Bloody Mary is that the drink is named after the English monarch Mary Tudor, Queen Mary Tudor, whose nickname was famously Bloody Mary because of how many Protestant heretics she burned at the stake. Again, either way, it's a legendary hangover remedy, so it stands to reason that January 1st, is National Bloody Mary Day for everybody who's working off uh, a hangover. And we're going to close this whole thing, Vibs, with something that I think works into the shit that you do, the lowering the bar segment. Annie had found a bunch of fucking gross stuff. You tell me yay or nay. The infected whitehead. I've never heard of these. I can't imagine you have either. But you swirl vodka and Bloody Mary mix together, and you swirl it around with a spoonful of cottage cheese and then you do a shot of that. That's the infected whitehead. Then there's the bloody brain, which I've done. Yeah. Pinch, uh, peach snaps, grenadine, and Baileys. Right? So the Baileys kind of hangs there like a brain. It's a fun one. I've done that. It's not that bad. No. The smoker's cough. Have you heard that one no. before? The smoker's this one's cough? gross. Jägermeister with a little shot of mayonnaise in it. And, and the name, the smoker's cough, is as foul as I've ever heard. Right? You know it's coming. 
I, I, anyway, yeah, the tapeworm, which is similar. A tapeworm is something that you can kind of picture in your mind. A tapeworm shot is vodka and Tabasco sauce, also with a little squeeze of mayonnaise through it. So it kind of looks like a fucking tapeworm. Those are four that you could probably put on uh, lowering the bar, and any of those four might make Feidelberg throw up. 100%. I, I actually see this being an episode with a shot wheel behind us and whatever you spin, the bartender makes up. And this is the one I'm buying for you, the three-penis liquor. There's a couple of ones that are infused. There's a three-penis liquor. It's available in supermarkets in Shanghai, but I'm going to get some. Yeah. It's brewed with three penises, three animal penises, penis of a seal, the penis of a deer, and then a Cantonese dog penis. So they brew the rice wine around those. And traditional Chinese medicine reportedly stipulates that animal penises can help increase male vitality. So it's called the three penis liquor. And I'm going to get one for you just because it seems like something that you might like. Not, you know, and that's not a dig on you by any stretch of the imagination. And this is the, (laughs) you probably would, right? And this is the final one that we're going to talk about. And it's what I'm going to close the podcast on. The Sour Toe Cocktail. Never heard about this until Andy put it in front of me. Apparently, there's a place in the Yukon Territory of Canada. And it's called the Sourdough Saloon. Sourdough, like the bread. And it's in the downtown hotel in Dawson, which is in the Yukon Territory in Canada. And the Sourdough Saloon was established in 1973. They have a cocktail called the Sour Toe Cocktail. It's become a Dawson City tradition, and it is exactly what it sounds like. A human toe that has been dehydrated and preserved in salt is used to garnish a drink of your choice. So you take and order a drink, and they put the same toe. You have to give it back to them. And the only stipulation is when you drink the drink, the toe has got to hit you in the lip. So it's something that people do, and it is. The first toe is said to have belonged to a miner and a rum runner named Louis Lichen who had his frostbitten toe amputated in the 1920s. Lichen preserved it in a jar of alcohol in his cabin for memories. Roughly 50 years later, in 1973, Yukon local Captain Dick Stevenson found the jar containing the toe while cleaning his cabin. Captain Dick brought the toe down to the sourdough saloon and started plunking it into the drinks of those who were brave enough. Thus, the Sour Toe Cocktail Club was formed. It became like a rite of passage. Unfortunately, the original toe lasted only seven more years after that discovery. According to the Sour Toe Cocktail Club, in July of 1980, a miner named Gary Younger was trying for the Sour Toe record. On his 13th glass glass of Sour Toe champagne, his chair tipped over backwards and he swallowed the toe. Sadly, toe number one was never recovered. Since then, seven more toes have been donated to the bar. Two number twos was given after an amputation due to an inoperable corn. Excuse me. Toe number two was given after an amputation of an inoperable corn. Toe number three came from a victim of frostbite, and that one was also accidentally swallowed. Toe number four was an anonymous toe that was later stolen by a hunter. The fifth and sixth toes were donated by a Yukon old-timer in return for free drinks for his nurses. Toe number seven was an amputation due to diabetes. And toe number eight arrived in a jar of alcohol with the message, don't wear open toe sandals while mowing the lawn. On August 24, 2013, a man ordered a sour toe shot. He did he downed the shot 
and he downed the toe along with it on purpose, swallowed the toe whole, and paid the $500 fine. They started finding people who were swallowing the toes, and then he promptly exited the saloon. This is the first and only time the toe was deliberately consumed, and as a result, the fine has been increased from $500 to $2,500 for anyone who's looking to swallow the toe. In June 2017, the toe was stolen and later returned via mail to the owner, and the rules have changed in the past 27 years. The sour toe, if you go to the Dawson Saloon in the Yukon Territory in Canada, you can go to the Sourdough Saloon and do the Sour Toe Challenge. The Sour Toe Challenge, you can pair it with any drink, but there's one rule that remains. You can drink it fast, you can drink it slow, but the lips have got to touch the toe. Muhammad Ali, I mean, we know everything about him. Some people like him, some people don't, but whatever it was, Muhammad Ali was fucking Muhammad Ali. An LA Times photographer, his name is Boris Yaro, Y-A-R-O. He heard reports of a suicidal jumper while listening to police radio, because that's what LA Times reporters do. So he drove off to the scene, and it was right off of uh, Los Angeles' Miracle Mile. And there he found a young black guy in flare jeans and a hoodie perched on an office building fire escape nine floors above the street. And this guy was crazy. He seemed like he was in his mid-20s and he was going in and out of hallucinations thinking that he was back in Vietnam and that the Viet Cong were out to get him. And when he wasn't hallucinating about the Viet Cong coming to get him, he was then addressing the crowd saying, I'm not a good person. I'm no good. I'm going to jump. And from what I understand and from the reports of this guy, Boris Yarrow, the crowd was egging him on, as they so often do out in L.A. It's a place of no love. One of Ali's best friends, a guy named Howard Bingham, was at the scene and he called Muhammad Ali because this was all going down about four minutes away from Ali's house. Four minutes later, Ali comes driving up the wrong side of the street in a Rolls Royce with his lights blinking. So Muhammad Ali, this is 1981, Muhammad Ali comes up the block in a Rolls Royce with the lights blinking. I mentioned 1981 because 1981 was at the end of Ali's career. He's five years removed from the thrill in Manila. And the thrill in Manila, he won, right, that fight against Joe Frazier. But everyone kind of counts the thrill of Manila, uh, Manila of when Ali got irrevocably destroyed, right? Like something got destroyed inside of his head. Mm-hmm. So that was five years before 81. You know, it was like the end of 75. And then three months before this whole jumper thing happened, Ali got the taste slapped out of his mouth by his friend and sparring partner, Larry Holmes. So much so that Ali couldn't answer the bell for the 11th round. And after the fight, Larry Holmes broke down and cried because of the way that he just decimated this one-time statuesque type guy. Again, January of 81. In December of 81, Muhammad Ali would then fight Trevor Burbick, which would be the last fight of his career, and he would lose miserably to Trevor Burbick too. And then three years after 81 is when Ali would be diagnosed with Parkinson's. So this is the Ali that you're getting. You're getting a very handsome Ali still, right? Because he was a beautiful man, right? But not that young float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, but not the shaky hand guy either. You're kind of getting that the tail in the career when he was still beautiful. And he comes onto the scene of a jumper in a fucking Rolls Royce, right? He jumps out. By the way, I'm dying to tell you about Trevor Burbick because I don't think you know that. Do you know the Trevor Burbick story at all? I mean, I remember the the fight, 
but yeah. I don't remember. Trevor Burbick's story. only guy who's fought Ali, Larry Holmes, and Mike Tyson. Uh-huh. Trevor Burbick was convicted of rape, and he wound up being beat to death with a lead pipe by his nephew in Jamaica. There's so much other shit about Trevor Burbick. He was knocked down three times by Mike Tyson with one punch. I could talk about fucking Trevor Burbick for days, but that's the negative me. I'm not going to talk about that today. For, Ali for shows up. Podcast. Yep. <laughs> Ali shows up, right? He makes his way right up the stairs, runs up nine flights of stairs, hangs out of a window, two windows over from the fire escape. This is all documented. This isn't something that was made out. And he starts shouting to this jumper who goes by the name Joe. That's what the guy had addressed himself as. Starts yelling out, Joe, Joe, you're my brother. I love you. I would never lie to you. Come in. I love you. You're my brother. This guy, Joe, then starts to hang off the fire escape. People think that he's jumping, but he wasn't. He was hanging off the fire escape so he could look around almost like a gargoyle to get a better look at Muhammad Ali. And once he saw Muhammad Ali there, he was mesmerized. Muhammad then got out onto the fire escape, put his arms around the guy. They went inside the window. They came downstairs. They hopped into his Rolls Royce. Muhammad Ali took him to the uh, police station. The police let Ali take him to the police station. And then afterwards, Ali took him to a veteran's hospital. There's a bigger part to the story where one of the guy wasn't a veteran at all. He was just out of his mind. He'd never been in Vietnam or anything like that, but that's not important. What's important is that Muhammad Ali showed up in a Rolls Royce and he talked the guy off a ledge who was about to kill himself. And I don't think anyone ever heard that story. You've been spinning around this mortal coil slightly longer than I have, and you certainly had a horse in the sports race more than I have. Have you ever heard that story? No, and I know a shit ton of Muhammad Ali stories, but mm-hmm. until you mentioned that to me today, I, I honestly did not know that. I'm going to give you a shitload of examples of executions that got fucked up. And the first ones that I'm going to get into are ones that are involving the electric chair. And they're, they're, they're terrible. They really are terrible. On April 22nd, 1983, in Alabama, there was a gentleman named John Evans, and he was sentenced to die in the electric chair. After the first jolt of electricity, sparks and flames erupted from the electrode attached to his leg. So his leg went on fire. The electrode burst from the strap, and it caught on fire. Smoke and sparks also came out from under the hood in the vicinity of this poor bastard's left temple. Two physicians entered the chamber and found that he still had a heartbeat. The electrode was then reattached to his leg. Another jolt was applied. This resulted in more smoke and burning flesh. And again, the doctors found a heartbeat. It just wasn't working. So ignoring the pleas of John Evans' lawyer, a third jolt of electricity was applied. The execution in all took 14 minutes of electricity and eventually left Evans' dead body charred and smoldering. It's a tough way. It's like the Green Mile, the movie The Green Mile. Exactly, yeah. Rest in peace. Um, They botched the... They botched it, yeah, because they had fucked around with the sponge, which we're going to get into. October 16th, 1985, in your home uh, home state of Indiana, a guy named William Vandiver. Uh, After the first administration of 2,300 volts, Vandiver was still breathing. The execution eventually took 17 minutes and five jolts of electricity. 17 fucking minutes of electricity. Van Diver's attorney, Herbert Chaps, witnessed the execution and observed the smoke and the smell of burning. He called the execution outrageous, and the Department of Corrections later admitted that the execution, quote-unquote, did not go according to plan. 
17 minutes of jolts seems like it's cruel and unusual punishment. May 4th, 1990 in Florida, Jesse Joseph Teferro. Sounds like the name of somebody who did something wrong. During the execution, six-inch flames rose from Teferro's head, and three jolts of power again were required to stop his breathing. State officials claimed that the botched execution was caused by inadvertent human error, the inappropriate substitution of a synthetic sponge for a natural sponge that had been used in previous executions. So they switched sponges on it. It didn't work. And so flames started shooting out of the guy's fucking heads. It's not the biggest flames that you saw. Those were only six-inch flames. On March 25th, 1997, also in Florida, Pedro Medina, a crown of foot-high flames shot from his headpiece during his execution, filling the chamber with a stench of thick smoke and gagging over two dozen official witnesses. So these people who were here to witness the execution were all fed the stench of this guy's head being burnt, and um, a bunch of them started to pass out and throw up. An official threw the switch to manually cut off the power and prematurely end the two-minute cycle of 2,000 volts. His chest continued to heave until the flame stopped and then death finally came. After the execution, prison officials blamed the fire on a corroded copper screen, but two experts hired by the governor later concluded that the fire was, again, caused by the improper application of that darn sponge. So sponge application in a electrocution, death by electrocution, seems paramount. And if you don't get that done correctly, then you have what's called a botched execution. I'm going to do one more electric chair, then I'm going to move on. On July 8th, 1999, 22 years ago, Alan Lee Davis in Florida was sentenced to be electrocuted by the electric chair. Before he was pronounced dead, the blood from his mouth had poured onto the collar of his white shirt and the blood on his chest had spread to about the size of a dinner plate. So for some reason, he started to bleed from the mouth as he was being electrocuted, which caused this huge blood stain on his shirt. So this blood was oozing through the buckle holes and over the leather chest strap that was holding him in place. His execution was the first in Florida's brand new electric chair that was built especially so it would accommodate a man of Davis's size. Alan Lee Davis was 350 pounds, about the size of Doug's, who's currently down in a... Uh, Florida right now. So later, when another Florida death row inmate challenged the constitutionality of the electric chair, Florida Supreme Court Justice Leander Shaw commented that the color photos of Davis being executed didn't depict a man who was being executed by the state, but a man who was being brutally tortured to death by the citizens of Florida. And he wanted to be no more executions on this on this chair. Justice Shaw included pictures of Davis's dead body in his opinion. The execution was witnessed by a Florida state senator whose name was Ginny Brown Waite, who at first was shocked at what she had saw. She saw this big fat fuck who was burned to death with a giant blood stain on his chest. But then she noticed, this is what Ginny Brown Waite had noticed, that the blood, since there were straps across his chest, actually formed into the shape of a cross. And then she thought that that was a message from God saying that he supported the execution. So the electric chair stayed for years after that. So that guy was essentially killed by God. Now on to the dildos. I'm excited about this. You are. And you had mentioned to me right before we started, you said, Large, I don't mean to brag, but I'm a little bit of a sex toy 
aficionado. I'm an expert. I don't use <laughs> sex toys, but I worked at a morning radio station for four years. And if you work at a morning radio station, you have to take like a, a wacky sounds test mm-hmm. and you have to take a sex toy test to be able to go on air. Valentine's Day, they'd bring in a sexpert and she'd bring in on some sex toys. And I worked there for four years, so I, I got a pretty good knowledge of it. Did I use any of them? Not really. Most of them were for, for females. There was one that was like an egg that you could just fuck. So I fucked an egg, but it was just kind of right. like fucking a latex glove, kind of. Right. But yeah, I fucked an egg. It's not very, it's it's not glamorous. It's not fun to say, but yeah, I fucked an it egg. It happened. Yeah, I um I remember when I first started the Caller Daddy Girls when we were in the original HQ, um which was an absolute dump. Like I get deliveries, sends me a bottle of wine, sends me a bottle of bourbon, sends me this. They consistently got delivered um goods that were meant to be inserted inside of them. Right, uh, correct. All different yeah. types of stuff. So we were in HQ two out in the old office, and everyone's on top of each other. Uh, back when it was Alex and Fofia, mm-hmm. and I can't remember what the sex toy was. I want to say it was a vibrating cock ring, and they had no idea. Mm-hmm. But I was like, instantly when they pulled it out, like we don't know what this is. And I was like, vibrating cock ring. <laughs> the balls go there, the cock goes in there, vibrates, and then you cup like. And they're just like, <laughs> oh wow, this this kid's a poonhound. I'm going to go through the story of the USS Indianapolis with you guys. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time. If not, you're hearing it for the second. What can I do? On March 31st, 1945, on the eve of the Allied landing at Okinawa, a Japanese kamikaze struck the Indianapolis, killing nine sailors and sending the ship to Mare Island, California for repairs. So this this ship was already hit by kamikazes. Yeah, I believe Okinawa was the most kamikazes used in the war. I think you're right. Yeah, I think that was the thing. So less than four months later, after those repairs, in late July 1945, less than four months later, nearly 1,200 USS Indianapolis crew members sailed out from Mare Island, California on a special secret mission. And you had mentioned the atomic bomb earlier, Vibs. It all comes back around. The Manhattan Project scientists had just completed the world's first operational atomic bomb, and Lieutenant General Leslie Groves needed to move the uranium core of the weapon within striking distance of Japan, so the Indy was charged with delivering that core to the Pacific island of Tinian, where American B-29 bombers were based, ready to drop some payload. So now this, this, this ship was hit by kamikazes, repaired. Four months later, they're given the uranium core for the first atomic bomb, and they have to deliver it to the island of Tinian. They completed their mission. They got there. Everything was a success. And then the warship, with 1,197 men on board, just under 1,200, went sailing west towards the Philippines when it was attacked. The first torpedo struck without warning just after midnight on July 30th, 1945. The second torpedo, fired from the Japanese submarine, almost tore the ship in half. As fires raged below, the huge ship began listing onto its side, and the crew abandoned ship. Twelve minutes later, the 610-foot-long ship, I'll put that into perspective, that's two football fields in length, 610-foot-long ship was underwater within 12 minutes, and most of the lifeboats were underwater with it and fell to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. About 900 men were survivors of those initial torpedo attacks, and they were drifting in groups in the middle of the Pacific. And drawn by the carnage of the sinking, hundreds of sharks from miles around headed towards the survivors. I'll I'll just do those numbers again. 
1,200 men on board, two torpedoes hit, 900 men are in the water, 300 were dead from the torpedo attacks. So now we have 900 men in the water with no lifeboats, right? So what they did was grabbed onto anything and then latched onto themselves and formed little human pods with life preservers on. Life preservers that they'd be wearing for a couple of days, which started to get waterlogged, causing blisters and all this kind of wacky shit. We'll talk about that in a second. So there's pods of soldiers just trying to stay alive somewhere in the Pacific uh, Ocean, and hundreds of sharks are coming to get them. Sure, yeah, I think sharks can uh, like smell or sense a crash from like 100 miles away. Yeah, they Something have those insane. things. They can, yeah. sh- they can sense one droplet of blood in a million droplets of, uh, of water. So first, the sharks fed on the corpses who perished in the attack, those 300 men. But once the corpses had sank, they started picking off the living soldiers one by one. It was nearly five days before the men were spotted by a rescue plane and eventually pulled out of the water. After being faced with exposure, dehydration, salt water poisoning, and shark attacks while stranded in the open ocean with only a few lifeboats and almost no food or water, out of a crew of almost 1,200, just 317 sailors survived making the sink- uh, survived the sinking of the Indianapolis, making it the greatest single loss of life at sea from a single ship in the history of the U.S. Navy. So John gave us one for Air France. I'm telling you right now, the USS Indianapolis started with 1,200, ended with 317. That's the greatest single loss of life at sea from a single ship in the history of the U.S. Navy. What a nightmare, too. Just being stranded in an open ocean. So now 900 goes down to 300 because of, like I said, dehydration, starvation, um, and also sharks picking you off one by one. Guys saying that they're floating there for five days. Five days? You're floating there for five days, and all of a sudden, the sharks would just kind of tease you and come by. Mm. But you saw sharks, some as big as 15 feet long. It's fucking terrifying. That's where this gentleman's grandfather comes in. Guy's name is Donovan Dewing, which is kind of a cool name. Donovan Dewing is kind of a cool name. Yeah, yeah. I'd like if my I'm Captain Donovan Dewing. Yeah, that's please put your seatbacks. Donovan Dewing. Yeah, Donovan Dewing's kind of cool. So his great grandfather, great grandfather Ralph, was on the ship when the torpedoes hit, and he was one of the 317 that survived five days in the ocean. Donovan's dad told him stories about how Donovan's dad's grandfather and his great grandfather Ralph, Ralph saw his friends get eaten by sharks and get swept away in currents. And some had tried to swim away seeing land that wasn't there because dehydration had caused dozens of sailors to hallucinate that there was some sort of oasis in the distance. So they'd break off from the pack and they'd start swimming towards islands that weren't fucking there. Everyone was going crazy five days in the water with sharks all around. It's fucking nuts. I don't know. I understand you're not supposed to drink seawater, but if I'm out there, I think if I'm just swimming in it, I'm going to start drinking it. I don't know. Even if you're telling me no. I, I mean, I, you say that too, but you know it's absolute death. We have a very bad story about what somebody did, a family did, as opposed to drinking turtle blood. It's coming up in a, in a couple of seconds. But um, I don't know either. Water, water everywhere, but not a job you're, to drink, right? Yeah, you're desperate. Um, I know. Yeah. I, and there's nothing else you can do. You can't even get to your own urine, which I'd go to first. True. Before. Yeah. Or even well, your urine, if oh, you could, let me. I could – like it's could like a, it's like a camelback. Yeah, urine's actually the better choice than that. It is a thousand percent. And Vibs is urine. Fuck I, it. I always think about that from twenty eight days. Remember the guy who cut off his arm? Yes, he was stuck in a rock. I think he drank his own. Urine. Yeah, he did. One hundred twenty seven hours or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least yeah. James Franco did in the movie. Yeah. Yes. And my uh, urine is nineteen percent Merlot right now 
<laughs> it's a big weekend. I'd drink it. On the third day, my great-grandpa lost hold of the net that survivors were clinging to, but his best friend grabbed him and saved him. I'm sure the grandfather, great-grandpa had brought that up you know, multiple times. Two days later, they were rescued. He was given a purple heart, in which his great-grandson Donovan now has, and it wasn't until what Donovan calls years and years later did this hero, Ralph, eventually die of skin cancer, which he says likely began after the five-day ordeal Ralph Dewing went through under the Pacific sun. He would said that his grandfather is sort of like that typical ginger, you know, red hair and light skin. So you know, skin cancer is kind of just coming for all of us, you know, particularly with my last name and whatnot. But, you know, it's particularly bad if you spend that much time exposed at one point, I would think. So it didn't kill him right away, but perhaps it led to something that had got him years and years later. But anyway, that's a good story. Ralph had survived, went on to create a big family, including um, a great-great-grandson who has the excellent taste to be listening to this podcast on a regular basis, right? That's a that's a good ending to a tragic, the worst, um, you know, naval death toll ever, right? But here's a not-so-good story from the USS Indianapolis, as if the loss of 900 lives wasn't enough. Looking for a scapegoat for how poorly the evacuation of the ship was, the U.S. Navy placed responsibility for the disaster on Captain Charles McVeigh, who was among the few who managed to survive. He was court-martialed on two charges. This brings me back to what you were talking about with Air France, John. He was failing to order his men to abandon ship quickly enough and hazarding his ship by failure to zigzag. Several aspects of the court-martial were controversial since there was evidence that the Navy itself had placed the ship in harm's way by not informing him that a Japanese submarine was operating in the vicinity, thus making the captain think it was unnecessary to zigzag. And I say zigzag, I'm like, ugh, you know, like mm-hmm. what kind of, but that is a term, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're in unfriendly waters, warships will change their course by zigzagging around, making themselves a moving target that's a little bit more difficult to hit. It's like running from a crocodile. Yeah, exactly. you got to run in a zigzag type motion. I just never figured that to be like a real word. It's like, how is hamstring a medical term? It's hamstring? Yeah, that's You it. know what I mean? Like patellar. And then you have, yeah, patellar tendon, yeah, <laughs> yeah. metatarsals and stuff right, like that. Right, but that one's called a hamstring. It's always bugged yeah. me for some reason. So anyway, this guy was brought up on charges. Several hundred ships in the U.S. Navy were lost in combat during World War II, but McVeigh was the only captain to be court-martialed in the sinking of his ship. For years, he received hate mail, including every year he would receive the same Christmas card that read, Merry Christmas. Our family's holiday would be a lot merrier if you hadn't killed my son. Fucking yikes. In 1968, 23 years later, McVeigh was discovered on his front lawn by his gardener. He had a toy sailor in one hand, his Navy-issued revolver in the other. He was 70 years old when he committed suicide. That was in 1968. In October of 2000, the United States Congress passed a resolution that Captain McVeigh's record should state that he is exonerated for the loss of the Indianapolis. That was in 2000. President at the time, Bill Clinton, signed the resolution, and in July of 2001, the United States Secretary of the Navy, Gordon England, officially entered the congressional language into McVeigh's Navy service record, clearing him of all wrongdoing. So that's a semi-happy ending, but at the very least, rest in peace, Ralph Dewing great-grandpa of Donovan doing, and also to Captain Charles McVeigh of the USS Indianapolis. Today's guest host is going to be a pretty famous comedian, a guy who doesn't talk enough about all the shit that he's done, but it's Jim Florentine. And then you have a gig in Inside the NFL? Yeah. 
And now was okay. that when they were trying out? I know because Dennis Miller had the Monday Night Football gig, right? Yeah. And it was a little bit too highbrow for everybody. He was starting to make, you know, Archduke Ferdinand references on like punch returns, right? And he started to mention some of the midget, um, you know, gestures that I did at the top of the show, which was riveting, by the way. Um, but what they had almost like another rotating class, uh, rotating cast of comics, I think, didn't they? Yeah, well, Wanda Sykes was doing it for a while, and then she got too busy and too big in her career. So they were looking for a comic to really, like, you know, put an edge to the show because it was kind of like, you know, lame. The show, you know, not lame, but it was just, you know, it was vanilla. So they, so, so the producer hired me because we really want you to push, push the limits. I'm like, all right, they go seriously. That's why we hired you. And I got fired after the first year because, well, the one that got that get, did me in is I, I won Ricky Williams. You remember that story? Yeah, Ricky I remember. Football go smoke pot with Lenny Kravitz. I did a whole bit on. I dressed up like Ricky Williams and went down to Miami. I actually did a and knocked on Dan Marino's door to try to get back on the on the team with a bong and, and you know in my hand and stuff and a football and showed up like in a Cheech and John van with smoke coming out. Basically, I was smoking pot on inside the NFL and the, the producers, the heads of HBO Sports went crazy. Right. They were, they were, and, and it, it went. I went up, went in an Emmy for the for for the bit. <laughs> you won an Emmy, right? Segment in sports. I won an Emmy that year for it. <laughs> but they what? got after that. They were like, "All right, we've had enough of this guy." They were going to send me to the Super Bowl to do stuff, but they go, "No, this is too edgy." They're like, "Kids watch this show, right?" And but you won an Emmy. Guy who stuck up for me that said, "Put the bit on the air" because they weren't going to air it. Uh-huh. It's on YouTube when I you you can see the bit. But uh, Bob Costas goes, "No, it's funny. It's relevant. It needs to be on the show." Any blackface? Huh? Any blackface? No, I, I put the helmet. Remember Ricky had the, the shield? Yes. Yep. You couldn't see any water long sleeves, so I put, I put the gloves on, and I put dreads on, so you couldn't even see my face. Okay, good. I almost got I you there. up in a dolphin uniform. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Ricky Williams, University of Texas won the Heisman, right? And then all of a sudden, yeah, now he's a massage therapist somewhere. One thing about Gretzky is as great as he was, I mean, Jordan, everybody saw Jordan play. Yeah. Gretzky, we didn't see him a lot in the States because he was in Edmonton. We right. really only saw him in the playoffs where there was so much like of his game that we just didn't see in the state. Unless you had a fucking one of those 800 foot satellite dishes in the right. yard, you've talked to fucking ET on. We weren't getting <laughs> ESPN and fucking like Gretzky in the eighties. So we missed out on, on so much, on so much of that stuff. to think about. You're right. Like we, and we didn't see a lot of like West coast baseball. Or you had to wait for George Michael's sports machine from the hit the bullshit button to kind of or call sports phone to get. Now we're just dating ourselves. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's disgusting. Did you if you nineteen eighty six guy named Gerard Gallant? Yeah, he accidentally well, stepped on Borges Salming's face. Borges, Bo, yeah, Bo, no, Borges Salming on the Toronto. Borges Salming, but, but actually, can I go back to Malachik for a second? Oh yeah, just, sure, please do. Just to that, like, no, people didn't see that because it wasn't on TV and there was nothing viral then, and you heard about it, and like, I think Sports Center might have showed it that night, but it was so gruesome that they didn't show it again because right. you wouldn't, you had to like dig it up for it. And it was disgusting. It looked like something that Quentin Tarantino put together. I'm not even trying to make light of it. It was a harrowing injury. And if the if they and the not they didn't say at the time, but it, the doctor said or the EMT said if that happened at the other end of the ice, he would have died because he he got hit at the end where the fucking Zamboni doors were. So they were able to get him off the ice that much quicker, or to the hospital that much quicker that it made the difference between living and dying. It, that's such crazy fact, but he was very emotionally sky as anyone would. I was, you can imagine the PTSD and we didn't hear about it for years though. It was maybe 20 years later. There was an article about him and 
he went through a real tough time. And I, I don't know. I hopefully, hey, hopefully the guy's doing well these days, but he had a really, really tough time after that. And it all went back to that injury, man. It was a, it was a fucking a horrible thing that happened to him. I mean, he came within not inches of dying, like half some point percentages of millimeters of dying on the ice. Right, and it just so happened that somebody was able to stem somehow. There's the, even after losing a bucket onto the ice. And again, yeah. I tell people to Google the shit out of something. Clint Malarchik slash throat. Google oh. the shit out of that. Google yeah, Borgia Salming's face. Yeah, well, he was. He fell on the ice. He was lying on the ground, and Gerard Gallant accidentally stepped on him and put 250 stitches right across his fucking face. I mean, his face looked like something that was stepped on by an ice skate. There's no way to like. There's no sugar way to coat. sugarcoat sugar this. That, yeah. yeah, you can't sugarcoat. If your throat is slashed by an ice skate and you're on ice, it's going to promote bleeding, and yeah. ice tends to show blood. If somebody steps on your face and your name is Borgia Salming or you know, Rear Admiral or Large McGuire, it's going to put 250 stitches. And to even see him as an older man and to see the track of a fucking skate go across his face, I had pointed out to you in 1980 while playing for Harford, Mark Howe, Gordy Howe's son, slid into the goal, and there was yep. a pointed metal curve in the center of the net back then. The base of the net in the back of the goal was not straight back then. It had a metal curve to it, almost like the McDonald's arches, that was supposed to stabilize the net better. So that metal curve jutted out. Mark Howe slid into that, and he impaled himself from his upper thigh, a five-inch long, five-inch deep gash where the metal perforated his rectum and it, it upper thigh rectal area. He lost 21 pounds during rehab, and he sued the NHL, and his case is what changed, ultimately changed the back of the net to how you see it today, which is nice and smooth. But before that, it essentially had a spear-like tip to it. And you cannot find footage of Mark Howe's accident. It's very difficult to find. Mark Howe has only seen it once, and he said if somebody had given him a VCR tape of it, he watched it once and threw it away because it was too disgusting to watch that pool of blood that he also left on the ice. One of the best bad doctors of all time. The best bad doctors of all time. There's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Robert Liston. So maybe you've heard one of the stories about him. Maybe you haven't. I really don't care. I'm going to give you all the stories about him. This was in the days before anesthesia. In the days before anesthesia, one of the most effective ways to perform any surgery was to do it as quickly as possible, to try and keep the room clean, but to try to perform the surgery as quickly as possible. Makes sense. The less time a surgery took, the less likely the patient was to bleed out, which is always a good thing, and the less time they would have to feel pain. But there was a downside to trying for surgical rapidness because accuracy would usually be sacrificed in favor of speed. It terrifies me, Jerry, to think that at some point people were doing outside of like battlefield triage, that people were able to show up to doctor's offices in the 1800s and not expect to have anything that resembled anesthesia. So I think it would be especially terrifying then to go and the guy be like, listen, I have nothing for the pain, but what I do have is speed. And so that's what they would do to prevent blood loss and to kind of lessen the time that you would be uh, painful on the table. So one of the most famous surgeons, famous surgeons known for his speed was a gentleman named Dr. Robert Liston. 
he was known as the fastest knife on the West End, which is a great nickname for a doctor. Liston was particularly skilled at quick amputations, where most surgeons at the time lost one in four patients. They were running a mortality rate of 25%. Due to his speed and skill, Liston only lost about one in 10 of his amputee patients. So 10%, much better. So he had a long line of people who were lined up to get amputated by him. And the line wasn't a problem because he was pretty quick. British surgeon and author Richard Gordon, a noted Liston expert, claims that Liston could perform a leg amputation in two and a half minutes. At one point, he'd gotten that number down to 28 seconds. Two and a half minutes. I go in for a regular colonoscopy. I've had about eight colonoscopies. and It's an all-day affair for me, and that's just a quick camera trip up my ass. Two and a half minutes to get in and out of there without a leg is outstanding. Yeah, and imagine, like, next time you're mad because you had, like, a 9.30 appointment and they don't bring you in until, like, 9.45. This guy's selling point was, you know, accuracy is not my thing, but I'm really fast on the draw. And that, that's that, right. That, that was probably on his business card, like fastest amputee doctor in the West End. And that's, yeah, that's where we, and, and I would have gone to that guy. I did, there's no reason not to, right? If okay. you have the connections and you have the, the means to do it, I would rather spend two and a half minutes getting my leg. In. But by the way, I don't know how, how uh, prevalent leg amputations were in a day. It sounds like it was like taking out a wisdom tooth the way we're talking about it. But if I had to get my leg amputated, I'd like to have it done in two and a half minutes. And I'd like to have it done with only a one in 10 <laughs> chance of dying as opposed to a one in four. So he did tr- uh, re- uh, receive a tremendous amount of acclaim and he was world famous and known as the uh, fastest knife in the West End. But he also had a couple of operations or a couple of situations that stood above the rest when you look at his ample and famous body of work. I'm going to mention uh, four of them. One, while amputating a patient's leg, and this is what you might have seen the snippets on on social media. While amputating a patient's leg, Liston broke his personal record by finishing the surgery in two and a half minutes. This was before the 28-second anomaly. However, in the interest of speed, he got a little too excited, and he chopped off both the patient's testicles along with his leg. So see, there is one of those things that's tough to explain when that person... And by the way, this all documented. All documented in the 1800s and whatnot, and so it, it, it is what it is. So as he's in there, I guess you just sign away everything. And in the uh, rush to take the patient's leg off, this is bone saws. This is big time stuff. This isn't carving a turkey. This is taking off a leg. So while he was doing it in his rush, he took off both the patient's testicles. Right. That that was that period's equivalent of having an HMO. Yes, it was. <laughs> like really, you should have gone for the PPO. You you might have had both your balls, but you know we're not we're not here to take up all, all sorts of billable hours. Get get you through and. We'll figure out your balls at some other time. Quick. He was quick on the draw for diagnosis, too. So he also once, this is the number two one, he also once mistook a lump on a young boy's neck for a skin tag, and he removed it suddenly at the boy's home. He's like, no, that thing can just come off, whisk the skin tag right away. The lump turned out to be an aneurysm of the carotid artery, and the boy bled out and died. Terrible, terrible stories. Guy lost his balls when he had to lose his leg, and then parents lost their kids when he had misdiagnosed a uh, 
a carotid artery aneurysm as a skin tag. Number three, he performed, this is a positive, he performed the successful removal in four minutes flat, Jeff, four minutes flat, of a 45-pound scrotal tumor whose owner had to carry his tumor around in a wheelbarrow. So again, 1830s, think about that, 1830s England. Everywhere this guy went, he had a wheelbarrow in front of him with 45 pounds of testicle tumor hanging out into this thing. He goes to Dr. Liston and says, can you get rid of it? He said, not only can I get rid of it, you got four minutes and boom, boom, boom. Four minutes later, 45 pounds of tumor is taken successfully off this guy's sack. That's one of the positive ones out of the three that I just gave you. And the fourth one is the one that I think he's most known for. Liston was performing a leg amputation on a patient who was lying flat on a table. And back then, surgeries were often witnessed. There'd be a crowd of people around the surgery. They were witnessing surgeries and whatnot. It was done almost in a theater. You've seen pictures of it from the day. There was almost like a circular theater around it. So these people would kind of be right up on it. Very gory and whatnot, but it was plain old spectators, but also fellow doctors and stuff like that because it was a good way because there was no YouTube to YouTube leg amputations. So he's in there. Patient is flat on the table. There's spectators all around him. As Liston had brought down his knife, he was so focused on his speed that he took his surgical assistant's figure off, fingers, took two of her fingers off as he was taking off the patient's leg. And as he swung the knife back up, it actually clipped a spectator's coattails. And the spectator now seeing a leg gone and fingers chopped off and being that close to being taken off by the knife too, that spectator had fainted. The patient and Liston's assistant both died of the wounds that he had caused. And the spectator who collapsed was later discovered to have died from fright. Those three deaths made Liston's surgery the only surgery on record with a 300% mortality rate. One person goes in and three people go out with a toe tags. So that's possibly the most famous story about Robert Liston. And for good reason. I tell you what, another good idea, and I'm going to hit it right now, is my favorite product that we talk about. That's 3Chi. It's the industry leader in Delta 8 THC products which is a federal version of THC and is a more functional alternative to marijuana. It's an amazing buzz. It's a great body feel, but with a clearer head and less anxiety and paranoia. It's available online at 3chi.com. That's the number 3chi.com. And at retailers around the country, you must be 21 years or older to purchase. And remember, this isn't CBD. CBD is is child's play. This is a psychoactive and it will give you a buzz. So please use responsibly. I use a 25 milligram gummy. I suggest you try half the first time. And if it's enough, then do, you know, the whole thing the next time. Uh, again, go to 3chi.com, the number 3chi.com to shop for Delta 8 vapes, gummies, tinctures, and oils that can be used to make all your homemade edible needs. And you use the code TWISTED2021 at your checkout Receive 5% off your order. 3Chi, Delta 8, it was mentioned in the New York Post last week. And the New York Post was wondering, how can this be legal? And at one point, it wasn't, right? Remember, it was on the market. We did the Twisted History of Weed. We had a guy from 3Chi come in. He did a fantastic job. And then it was taken off shelves for a little while. 
Then it was put back on shelves. When I had read this in the New York Post, I immediately went to 3chi.com to stock up on it. So much so that I now know I'm not a huge fan of the black raspberries much, but they just started offering it in watermelon flavor too. So I got a shitload of Delta 8 3chi gummies in watermelon flavor coming to my door in a couple of, uh, maybe in a couple of days. And I used the code TWISTED2021 at checkout, got 5% off my order. You should do the same thing. That's 3chi. We're going right back to this left turn that I'm making on Unit 73. These guys are terrible people, by the way, Vips. They're terrible, terrible people. Unit 73 people. Biological warfare, it's fucked up. Yeah, I, I, you know, like you, it, unfortunately, when you're doing research like this, you see a lot of pictures and it seems like stuff leaked out and it's, it's bad. Flea bites, like looking at flea bites. That's gross <laughs> enough. I, I know. They really go above and beyond some fucking sick bastards and stuff that we normally just go one to one with Nazis. Like most of us have heard of the horrible experiments on humans done by Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele. But the Nazis weren't alone in conducting cruel experiments on humans. Here's a little history first. From the invasion of China in 1937 to the end of World War II, the Japanese military regime murdered nearly 6 million Chinese, Indonesians, Koreans, and Filipinos, among others, including Western prisoners of war. Right? So whenever we hear that 6 million number, we automatically think of the amount of Jews that were killed by the Nazis. But I'm turning it on its ear again to tell you about some scumbag Japanese. So for 40 years that had happened. And for 40 years, Japanese Unit 731 remained one of the most closely guarded secrets of World War II. It was not until 1984 that Japan acknowledged what it had long denied. Deadly experiments on humans conducted by the unit Unit 731, in preparation for germ warfare. Deliberately infected with plague, anthrax, cholera, and other pathogens, an estimated 3,000 enemy soldiers and civilians were used as guinea pigs inside these labs. Here are some of the lowlights. And they're a little bit gory, but that's what history is about. Yoshimura Hisato, a physiologist assigned to Unit 731, he took a special interest in hypothermia which is frostbite. As part of a study in limb injuries, Hisato routinely submerged prisoners' limbs in a tub of cold water filled with ice and had them held until the arm or leg had frozen solid and a coat of ice had formed over the skin. After being removed from the pool, the limbs made a sound like a plank of wood when struck with a cane. Hazato then tried different methods for rapid rewarming of the frozen appendage. Sometime he did this by dousing the limb with hot water, which is a big no-no when you have frostbite. Sometimes by holding it close to an open fire. And other times by leaving the subject untreated overnight just to see how long it took for the person's own blood to thaw the arm or the limb out. Thousands of men and women mostly Chinese communist prisoners as well as children and elderly farmers, were infected with diseases such as cholera and the plague. They had their organs removed for examination before they died in order to study the effects of the disease without the decomposition that occurs after death. So these people were used as guinea pigs. Subjects had limbs amputated and reattached to the other side of the body, while others had their limbs crushed or the circulation cut off to observe the progress of gangrene. Others were confined to pressure chambers to see how much a human could take before his or her eyes popped out. 
the effectiveness of various weapons was of obvious interest to the Japanese army. So to determine effectiveness, Unit 731 herded prisoners together on a firing range and blasted them from from various ranges by multiple Japanese weapons. Wound patterns and penetration depths were then compared on the bodies of the dead and dying inmates. So they were essentially target practice. Bayonets, swords, and knives were also studied in this way, and flamethrowers were also tested on both covered and exposed skin. Gas chambers were set up at unit facilities and test subjects exposed to nerve gas and blister agents. Heavy objects were dropped onto bound prisoners to study crush injuries. Subjects were locked up and deprived of food and water to learn how long humans could survive without them, and victims were allowed to drink only seawater or were given injections of mismatched human or animal blood to study transfusions and the clotting process. I'm going to keep going, but this is fucking brutal. Prolonged x-ray exposure sterilized and killed thousands of research participants, as well as inflicting horrible burns when the emitting plates were miscalibrated or held too close to the subject's nipples, genitals, or faces. Doctors assigned to 731 infected prisoners with syphilis and withheld treatment to observe the uninterrupted course of the illness because syphilis was a huge problem within the Japanese army. So they had to study it. To ensure the effective transmission of the disease, syphilitic male prisoners were ordered to rape both female and fellow male prisoners, who would then be monitored to observe the onset of the disease. If the first exposure failed to establish infection, more rapes would be arranged until it did. So they were infecting prisoners, then having those prisoners rape other prisoners to see how they would transmit syphilis. This is fucking crazy, right? Staying with rape for just a second, it became a common feature of Unit 731's experiments. For example, female prisoners of childbearing age were sometimes forcibly impregnated so that weapon and trauma experiments could be done on them and their fetuses. After being infected with various diseases, exposed to chemical weapons, or suffering these crush injuries, bullet wounds, shrapnel injuries, these pregnant subjects were then opened up and the effects on the fetuses were studied. So they'd knock these women up through rape, beat the balls off them in various different medical ways, then they'd cut them open just to see what the effects were on their unborn kids. To ease the conscience of the doctors involved, the prisoners were referred to not as people or patients, but simply as logs. And so whenever you read any kind of leaked information from this, they say we had to dispose of another 200 logs today. So people were called logs as if they were pieces of wood. When a prisoner's body, or when a log's body, was all used up, they would typically be shot or killed by lethal injection. When they got as much as they could, busting up your limbs freezing your hands, infecting you with syphilis, crushing you with something, then they would either kill you by lethal injecting or simply shoot you, although some may have been buried alive. Absolutely none, not a one, of the Chinese, Mongolian, Korean, or Russian prisoners that were assigned to, were assigned to Unit 731 survived their confinement. A 100% death rate. 
what the fuck happened to Unit 731? I never heard of it till I started doing this stuff. Have you ever heard of this shit? Vince? No. This is this is terrible stuff. This is this is Auschwitz level and beyond type stuff. I didn't know, you know. I I'm I'm now hearing about some of the the in, the, the camps in China that are housing these people and whatnot, and so I'm getting a little bit educated on that. I didn't know about this with the Japanese. What happened to Unit Seven Thirty One? As Japan headed towards defeat in the summer of 1945, the unit's leader, Lieutenant General Shiro Ishii, forbade all his researchers from discussing their work and ordered the demolition of the unit's headquarters. The site of the experiments was completely destroyed so that no evidence was left. But there were 400 prisoners still around. Every one of those ones were shot, which goes back to me saying nobody made it out alive. So even when they shut the place down, there was 400 people still actively being tested on there. They killed all 400. The mice in the laboratory were released, which could have cost the lives of another estimated 30,000 people just from releasing these mice because the mice were infected with the bubonic plague. They were part of these like tests. So even killing 400 people on the way out and letting go of mice, that might have caused another 30,000 deaths, according to some estimates. In Japan... Oh, so some of the Japanese perpetrators who were caught in China at the end of the war were arrested and detained, but only a handful of them were prosecuted for war crimes. In Japan, not one person involved with Unit 731 was brought to justice. And in a secret deal that I mentioned earlier, the post-war American administration gave them immunity for prosecution in return for details for their experiments, particularly their experiments with bugs. Some of the worst criminals from Unit 731, including Mr. Frostbite, Yoshimura Hisato, went on to occupy key medical and other posts in the public and private sectors. Fucking balls on these guys. It would be like if Joseph Mengele all of a sudden became your local dentist. So that's Unit 731. So if you're going to take anything away, again, if you include all the experiments, executed prisoners, Victims of their chemical warfare, warfare, that unit alone tallied a body count of nearly a half a million people. And I think that's worth mentioning. So that's a little left turn on Unit 731. Is Oliver Cromwell somebody that you know about? Like, like when I when when we did Rasputin, I did it with Jerry. I knew about Rasputin. I, I did. I knew about Rasputin and everything. But Oliver Cromwell, and since there were other Cromwells throughout history, was one that I wasn't too up on. Did you know him well? It, it's a name that I know. But if you were yeah. like, "Hey, this is a Jeopardy question, and you have to get this right," I would probably struggle. Yeah, so. that's probably a good way to put it too. Like if I have it at the hip for a Jeopardy question. I might, yeah, I might, I might throw him in. I throw Churchill in for a lot of shit. But yeah, Oliver Cromwell is one of those guys that I just don't have. So he was a bad guy who thought the Catholic beliefs were so long, were so wrong. He left England to do a great work against the barbarous and bloodthirsty Irish. All right. So he spent just nine months, a gestation period in Ireland. But during that time, he captured the town of Drogheda in September 1649. I might have butchered that name. I apologize. His troops massacred nearly 3,500 people. This is in nine months, including 2,700 royalist soldiers, all the men in town with weapons and probably some civilians, some prisoners and some priests. At the siege 
of Wexford, that's an easy one, in October of 1659, just one month later, 2,000 Irish soldiers and perhaps 1,500 more civilians were killed. So he's racking up a body count in the first nine months that he's there. Many historians accuse Cromwell of some other bad shit, slaughtering more civilians than he's known for, as well as soldiers, transporting many Irish Catholics as slaves to the West Indies. That's a no-no. Giving Catholics land to Protestant settlers and exiling the Irish poor to land in Connacht in the west of Ireland, which was as poor as fuck. And also he's known as the guy who canceled Christmas. Canceled Christmas, which I think is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that's you, where I draw the line. You're, you know, slaughtering women and children, sip, shit, p- people to the East Indies or wherever you said, you can't cancel Christmas. Nobody cancels Christmas. I know. I don't know if you know this, but it's my birthday. My birthday's Christmas Day. I might have told you somewhere casually. I'd rather go to West Indies as a slave than miss out on that cheap. You know what I mean? I'm turning 50 this year. It's going to be a blowout. Yeah, um, but you have that Irish skin. You're going to have. You're going to struggle even on oh, Christmas Day over there. Oh, it suck for me. I would hope I'd be indoors. There are English historians, and I tried to read both sides, who try to defend Cromwell a little bit, but not that much. They, re- they refute some of these claims, and I will save that debate because I think I can do a whole thing on Cromwell. Cromwell is very, very fucking interesting because he brought down a king. And I will tell you one thing about Cromwell. I'm going to talk about his death. I didn't know about this. He held a controlling position in England during the execution of Charles I. So after James I, who I had mentioned, who kind of brought in the, uh, the Ulster Plantation, he was um, – James I had died, and then Charles I had taken, it was his rightful throne, had taken uh, office as the King of England. And as he was there, Cromwell was part of either Parliament, he had some sort of big position there, and he did not like Charles I, right? Cromwell was instrumental in ousting and executing Charles, which then made Cromwell Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland. That's what he was named afterwards, which was essentially the king. They didn't have a king at that time in the wake of executing this guy. It was essentially a coup, right? They they executed the uh, king of England. So Cromwell was the big swinging dick and a a title that he didn't think was going to get usurped from him. So he was ready to pass it on to his son after he died and die he did on September 3rd, 1658 at the young age of 59, Oliver Cromwell died complications from a combination of two things, malaria and kidney stones, which sounds like a painful fucking death, and I'm glad that it was. He was buried with a huge cemetery, the Cemetery of a King, and he was, in, he was uh, put to rest in Westminster Abbey, which is a big deal, right? So after he's dead, his son takes control. His son doesn't have the support that Oliver had. So his son only held the uh, Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland for a cup of coffee, and he's bounced. And then you know who they get to uh, to replace the son? Charles II. So this is the son of Charles I, the guy who Cromwell helped get executed, who was in exile. So they bring back the executed king's son, and now Charles, uh, so then uh, fucking Cromwell's son gets bounced, and Cromwell is dead. There's nothing that they can do to him. But this is where it gets petty. Cromwell's bar- body is then dug up. They dig up his dead body from Westminster Abbey almost three years after his death and on the 12th anniversary of the execution of Charles I, the king's father. And then Cromwell's corpse is subjected to a posthumous execution, which I've never heard of before. He was hung in chains. Kill him twice. In, yeah, in <laughs> Tyburn, London. Then he was thrown into a pit. His head was then cut off. 
and displayed on a pole outside of Westminster Hall until 1685. I did the math on that. That's 24 years his dead head stuck on a fucking pole in front of Westminster Hall. Afterwards, his remains were owned by various people. People used to bid on his remains, and you can have them, including a documented sale in 1814 to somebody named Josiah Henry Wilkinson. I put it down because I read it. And it was publicly exhibited several times in museums and in private houses uh, before being buried beneath the floor at the anti-chapel at Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge in 1960. So his body got passed around like a joint in a dead concert. From eighteen, some from sixteen sixty to three hundred years, this poor cocksucker, who was double dipped in the he was double killed, uh, had his body passed around. So that's all. That's Oliver Cromwell. I think that's very very interesting. But one of the biggest drunks is one of the biggest um, one of the biggest figures of world history. And that's Alexander the Great. He was a prolific conqueror. And I'm going to give you the skinny on him. I wrote up some bullets on Alexander the Great. He was a student of Aristotle. Everybody mentions that whenever they talk about uh, Alexander the Great. I think Aristotle was his tutor for three years in and around his age of maybe like 16, right? In 15 years of conquest, Alexander never lost a battle, right? He was, for 15 years, he never lost a battle. So he's wildly, widely, and wildly, I guess, considered one of history's most successful military commanders. If you guys want to know when he lived, he lived around 350 B.C. He named more than 70 cities after himself, Alexandria's and the like, as he went through just conquering cities. And he even named one after his horse, the city of Bucephala. His horse had died in a uh, battle, and he named a city after it called Bucephala. The cause of his death remains one of the greatest mysteries of the ancient world. In 323 BC, Alexander the Great fell ill after downing a bowl of wine at a party. Represent. Two weeks later, the 32-year-old ruler was dead. Given that Alexander's father had been murdered by his own bodyguard, suspicion fell on those surrounding Alexander, most notably General Antipater. That's how I'm pronouncing it. And Antipater's son, Cassander, who would eventually order the murder of Alexander's widow and son. Some ancient biographers even speculated that Aristotle, who I mentioned was his teacher, who had connections with Antipater's family, may have also been involved. In modern times, though, medical experts have speculated that malaria, lung infection, typhoid, and possibly liver failure from all the drinking may have done Alexander in. His body was preserved in a vat of honey for nearly two years after his death to prevent decay and his empire collapsed into civil war after his death. How's the honey thing work? Like, do you I, have to replace the honey consistently? So honey just... is the only natural thing that doesn't go bad. Never put honey in a refrigerator. Is So it has always been used as a preservative. So I guess they dunked this poor bastard in there just uh, until they decided what the hell to do with him. I believe his body was bandied about for a long, long time. His body had passed along, and nobody knows where his final resting place is, Yeah, uh, Alexander the Great. But while he was alive, he was a big-time booze bag. He started drinking at a young age since alcohol was part of his family's culture. His father, Philip II, was reputed to also have been a heavy drinker. Drinking undiluted wine to excess was part of the social, civic, and ritual life of the Macedonian court. So young Alex probably drank wine every day, especially since it was safer than drinking water. That's kind of good to know. In, 30, in 328 B.C., 
in a drunken incident, his friend and general, Cletus the Black, had criticized Alexander's embrace of Persian culture, and Alexander uh, killed him by throwing a javelin into his chest. So a drunken Alexander got mad at his friend Cletus the Black, and he threw a javelin at him, not knowing what he was doing, and wound up piercing and killing him. Alexander also destroyed the Persian city Persepolis after a long night of binge drinking. So sometimes when we drink, we have very limited consequences. When Alexander the Great drank, people got impaled on javelins and cities uh, were were uh, raised to the ground. Yeah, fire off a few texts to some exes. You shouldn't, like you'll that. regret in the morning, but you, you didn't murder anybody. No, not that I know. It's me. My name is Large. I'm joined here today by, not yet, not fucking yet, Willie. <laughs> joined here with my man, Coach Ducks. Coach Ducks is one of the newest members of the Barstool family. Just the greatest guy in the world. We've been doing some content with him off and on. And, uh, Ducks, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. As always, John Kelly is in here trying to uh, put a fucking tent over this circus. <laughs> and today I'm just giddy. To know that Willie Colon is in the house, at least for a little while. The reason that Willie Colon is in the house is because today's edition, or this week's edition, is going to be the twisted history of big men. Willie could have just have been here last week when we did the twisted history of drunks. I checked both boxes. He wasn't invited for the twisted history of the Irish. And next week, uh, twisted history of giant dicks. <laughs> Who knows? Right. Uh, so anyway, so we're going to do twisted history of big men today. I don't know whether to call it units whether they call it big men, because we're going to deal with big and tall. You know, yep. Guys who are just extremely tall, guys who are extremely heavy. We're going to go through it. I thought I'd set the stage with making sure that people knew that the biggest dick in the world oh, man. is owned by the blue whale. The blue whale has a dick that's anywhere from 7 mm-hmm. to 10 feet long. Right? <laughs> Did you know this? Or am I, am I, am I no, dropping I didn't this know up? I, no, You I've seem like it. got a little uncomfortable with that. No, I'm, I'm fine with it. I just didn't know where we were going. With, with, a singular, with a single ejaculation, a blue whale exudes, expectorates, does whatever. 35 U.S. pints. Think about lining up 35 pints on a bar. Sometimes when you finish up, you're like, man, that was a little disappointing. I only got like a teaspoon or something like that. 35 pints out of a 10-foot dick. Each one of its balls oh, weighs anywhere between 45 to 68 kilograms. So that means that each ball is somewhere between 100 and 150 pounds on a blue whale. So you're looking at 10 feet of dick, 100 pounds of balls, 35 pounds of ejaculate. The reason I mention this, a blue whale's brain is 8 pounds. It's a little tiny thing. And also... The average blue whale vagina is 12 feet deep. So even this son of a bitch isn't getting the job done. Anyway, so that's the beginning of the uh, beginning and the end of Twist History of Big Men. We'll see you guys next week. So I wanted to start with big guys. I wanted to start with big guys. And the reason that we're going to have Willie on right away is because I think Coach Dugs. Now, you came up from us from Jacksonville and all that stuff. Who's the strongest person that you are close with, that you know, not met in passing, but who's the strongest person that you know, physically, powerful-wise? Well, that's a good question. It's not a bad one, right? No, yeah, I mean, I just, I know so many people that spend a lot of time in the gym. But you have to have, like, a cousin that just, you know. I don't I don't have any could, cousins. I've never heard that. You don't I, have any cousins? Who the fuck doesn't have any cousins? My, my mom had a brother who passed away. That's my father has a sister who never had a kid. Really? Yeah. So when I, yeah, so when I was in school, everyone was like, "Oh, that's my cousin, that's my cousin." I'm just sitting there like, oh. 
I might have one in Ohio, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> that may be the saddest shit I've ever heard <laughs> Our family reunions were, we didn't have a reunion. Really? It, our really? family reunion was just Sunday night dinner. So, Coach Doug, you kind of like the, and I'm, this is not a fat pun, but you're kind of like the Willie Mammoth of the, the human species. Like, they're, it's hard to find you. I mean, of the yeah. Duggerton clan. I know right. it's not yeah. your name, but you are walking around. You have some wood to chop. Yeah, like you have to keep this name going and whatnot because you don't have that deep. Your family tree is essentially a broomstick. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Straight up and That's, down. I, I got to keep the name. I, I believe me. I thought about changing the name legally. You got to start fucking. You got to get it out. Yeah. You know, I think Stu's going to help me out with that this summer. Oh, you bet he will. <laughs> I, I grew up with a big family, and I've met some monsters in my day. It wasn't until I started working with Willie. Willie's the strongest guy I know. My dad's a very strong guy. He's the greatest man I've ever met. But Willie's the strongest guy I know. So, therefore, I would say that Willie is the biggest guy I know. By far not the tallest. I'm taller than Willie. Mm -hmm. By far not the heaviest. I know guys who are a lot heavier than Willie. But Willie's the biggest dude I know, right? Canned hand arms, like the whole deal. Just (laughs) he's terrifying. Like the idea of going to prison is terrifying enough for me. The idea of sharing a cell with someone that looks like Willie does really uh, make me pay my parking tickets on time. But that's only because I don't know a lot of NFL guys. Mm -hmm. I haven't been around a lot of weightlifters. I haven't been around a lot of elite athletes. Willie. Like, it's got to be something that you get asked probably never, but I'm going to ask you now. Who's the biggest, and by biggest I mean like most powerful son of a bitch, whether it just be that straight up, I don't know, puts 800 pounds on this bar or something like that. Who's the biggest son of a bitch you've ever encountered? Biggest person, I think, pound for pound and strongest. He wasn't the strongest, but he had he had brute strength, and that was uh, my big brother, Max Starks. Yeah. Max was... As a freshman in high school in Florida, because he's from Orlando, actually, um, he's he's from the Lakeland area around that area. He was six six three twenty as a freshman. I mean, USA Today had him in the paper as the biggest freshman in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then he obviously he moved on to six eight. And I played with him. I mean, he would hover around three ninety. 400, but he looked like he was three forty five. You know what I mean? Like he carries it well. Yeah, like it, it. If he got over four hundred, you notice then he'll start to blow up a little bit. But I mean, just from a just from a physical specimen, like he's the biggest human. Being. Like he would stand still and he looked like a robot. Yeah. Like his arms, like his fingers, like he can stay, like he can scratch his kneecap standing up. His arms are so goddamn long. I have a Max Stark story. Yeah, I was at a Willie Cologne function, which Doug's you now have to go to. I, oh, you're gonna I, be can there. I be so bold as to invite him out? Yeah, I got no problems with Doug's. I up until three years ago, <laughs> I didn't. I have a lot of cousins. I didn't have a single black cousin. <laughs> now I have 50 of them. <laughs> so right. Willie's family is very, very ingratiating. They're just fantastic. He's got a great family. So I was at a function uh, for Willie's. I believe it might have been uh, before they had the baby. And so it was a nice function somewhere in New York City. There was an outdoor patio, but everything mm-hmm. was inside. You know, um, a couple like specialty drinks. The food was great. And even though it was snowing, there was an outdoor patio that was only partially covered. At one point, all the guys went outside to smoke cigars. And... I had noticed that Max was there in a golf shirt. He wore a, probably a sports coat to the event, but he was in a golf shirt. Everyone else was maybe in suits. So as we're out there smoking, I said to Max, I was like, by the way, I have an overcoat if you want it, if you're too cold. And he looked at me like, <laughs> he was like, who the fuck? He looked at Willie. Willie's like, I'm sorry. And again, like it's one of those things like when you played ball, yeah. I think not wearing sleeves was a thing. Like was, you were wearing was, sleeves just because you happen to have a long sleeve shirt. Yeah. Everyone had a long sleeve shirt on except for Max. I was trying to be nice. <laughs> this isn't a turn into a fucking Max Starks thing, but it's implied. Um, but, you know, like, again, so huge people like that. Antonio's a very big guy. Yeah, my brother. You know, I, I, all my brothers are, are, are wide back. 
fairly tall. Right. Same thing. Like I have brothers who have thick wrists. Like my brothers both. Uh, I have two other brothers, older and younger, and they're both like stronger than me. They're but not as tall as me. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's not the total package like some say I am. So I think it's just interesting to see because when you go into a gym now, you go into a gym now, yeah, and not. Not CrossFit Bison or, or something like that. Like if you go into a gym that's Retro twisted fitness. steel, yeah. Do you find yourself a lot being the biggest guy there? Uh, often, no. The thing about it's tough because the thing about being a big guy in the gym, mm-hmm. there's an expectation where people want to see you do circus-like things, yes. right? And, and it's weird. Like I'm not here. Actually, I'm here just for the cardio and toning up. Just so my shit. Yeah. I don't want. I'm just trying to get rid of the muffin top mm-hmm. and the extra rolls on my back. So I'm not really trying to fucking hang clean. 345, and I'm also not trying to squat 600 pounds. And if I'm curling, I'm not probably I'm not going past like 55 pounds, right? That's like probably a max. Now, if you want to get weird, if it's a meathead contest, we can go there. Mm-hmm. But I'm not doing that in a public, in a public gym. So me to neither. Speak. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but you know what happens to big guys and other big guys, especially. First of all, they want to know what you did, right? Like, yeah. why are you this big? What's your profession and who you are? And once you, if, if you're able to get that far. Then you start noticing guys start picking their weights up. I'm like, bro, I know you, you're only doing that because I'm here. Like, don't do it on my behalf. If you want to mm-hmm. do anything, do less. Do less so you don't walk out of here with a torn rotator cup or a fucking, you know, stretched out labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but big guys like to size each other up. I, I usually, I hate it. I don't, I'd stay away from other big guys in the gym. How tall are you? 6'3 even. How tall are you? 6'2 and 3 quarters. So 6'3 and I'm 6'5. John, how tall are you? You're 6'2. Every day, 34 million North Americans are discriminated against because they're tall. How big is tall? For men, that's six foot two and up. Mm. Everybody here has been discriminated against because they're tall. John, yeah. a little less than the other us. For women, that means above five foot ten. Kind of makes sense. Your wife's tiny. My wife's tiny, yeah. My wife's tiny. I, my wife's, I don't know how tall my wife is, but your, wife's, t- your wife's shorter and, than my wife. And is, yeah, and is taller than the kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But they're both below five ten. Right. So according to an article on Tesh.com that quotes ABC News, recent high profile cases have sparked a growing movement to recognize extreme height as a disability. Now, we, we have we have we're here. We're unicorns. We have height and weight. But I'm just talking now, like, for example, there was a company who revoked a job offer to a six foot ten candidate because they said his height posed workplace danger. Why? Because his legs wouldn't fit underneath the desk. One six foot seven airline passenger was forced to stand in the aisle on a plane during the entire flight because he couldn't fit into a seat. Mm. So why isn't extreme height? So if it's six two, let's go up a little bit. Six three, six four, six five. I mean, you're kind of considered extreme height. Recognized yeah, as yeah, a yeah. disability. Extreme, oh. like the opposite side of it. I believe people who are lacking in the height, like maybe like a za. People don't like when I use it, but Zog gave me the permission to use the word midget, so I use the word midget. I'm sorry if that offends you, but I got I got a pass, right? Tall people suffer from major health issues. Everything from ATM machines to subway seats are designed to be within the reach of people with wheelchairs, as well they should. People with wheelchairs should have accessibility, but that means that that tall people must be hunched over all day just to do everyday tasks, Right. And that's hurting their spine, causing chronic back pain. I'm trying to get my 40 acres and a mule here in case you guys haven't seen. Right. Tall people are often financially penalized because of their height. Yeah. There's something that everyone, once you get above 6263, you find out that there's something called the tall tax where we charge more money, everything from high-ceilinged homes 
You walk into a home now where you can walk through the basement, that's a tall tax. Everyone else's basement, you get hit in the head by a pipe, right? Custom-tailored clothes. We all know what that's like here, particularly Willie. Honestly, runway models. Female runway models are typically 5'10 or bigger when the actual clothing they model is being manufactured for much smaller people. And the expanded sizes in clothes are just getting fatter, not taller, as more Americans are becoming obese. So these things are happening that I think that it's legitimately creating some sort of disability that might be able to be looked at. Now back to eugenics. The idea of eugenics to produce better human beings has existed since at least Plato in ancient Greece. But once most people could see where uh, it ultimately led, it went into steep decline after 1945, which is the point that you made early on, after the Nazis. But there are still some less than famous examples that need mentioning. And I only say less than famous because people don't know about them, but there were very famous people. And some of them are my fucking guys. Some of them are my guys. One of them I have on a baseball hat that I wear proudly. So here's a warning. Obviously, there was an overt racism in the eugenics movement. But at the same time, racism was considered an unremarkable aspect of the effort to maintain a marvelous goal, which was the improvement of humankind in the future. So I just gave racism. I said there is no racism here. But I'm fucking... I'm downplaying it because we're all going to see the eugenics movement was really a sociopolitical program masquerading as a scientific one. So the racism here is very fucking palatable and it's very fucking real and it's not good. Okay, so I'm going to start with somebody maybe you haven't heard of, but there's a woman named Marie Stopes. She died in 1958 at the age of 77. Her sex manual it was called Married Love. It was published in 1918, was controversial and influential and it brought the subject of birth control into wide public discourse. She founded, along with her husband, Britain's first birth control clinic in North London in 1921. As a result, she's like the the grandmother of birth control of England, the grandmother of Planned Parenthood and stuff, so some people really respect her for that. So much so, she was one of six English women honored with a postage stamp from the Royal Mail in 2008, which is very recent. 2008, it was, even though that this, um, her book came out in 1918, the birth control clinic was 1921. In 2008, she was still one of six English women, known as trailblazers, honored with a postage stamp from the Royal Mail. And it's a little different in England. Here you get a fucking postage stamp if you're Frank the Tank and you make two good calls in the NCAA tournament. England's a little bit more of a big deal, for better or for worse. But she was also a hardcore eugenicist. She once wrote that, quote-unquote, hordes of defectives should be reduced in number so to be less of a burden on the fit. Me and you, Phipps. Stopes even went on to disinherit her own son out of the will because he married a short-sighted woman, therefore risking a less-than-perfect grandchild. Not a black woman, not a gay woman, not a feeble-minded woman, all these other things that I've been saying. A short-sighted woman. They took the fucking uh, son out of a wall. In Birth Control News, which was a magazine she set up in 1922, she described Southern Italians. She described them as a low-grade race and once said of the French that they should eliminate the taint of their large numbers of perverted or homosexual people. So shot across the fucking bow of Southern Italy and gay old France. Okay? 
In a book called Radiant Motherhood, Stopes went on to denounce any society that allows the diseased, the racially negligent, the thriftless, the careless, the feeble-minded, there it is again, the very lowest and worst members of the community to produce innumerable tens of thousands of stunted, warped, and inferior infants. She hated that these people were having fucking kids. In August of 1939, less than one month before the start of World War II, Stopes sent Adolf Hitler a copy of her book of songs for young lovers. There was another book that she had written. It was mostly poems. Three years into the war, Stopes wrote a humorous poem that included the line, Catholics, Prussians, the Jews, and the Russians, all are a curse or something worse. Again, all this shit, you put that together. That's racism across the fucking board. She got a postage stamp in 2008. So her name is Marie Stopes. I'm shining a light on eugenicists. This kind of reminds me of how uh, Frederick Douglass, who was an abolitionist and great, they were asking him about like women's rights, and he's like, "Yeah, no, fuck yeah. that. That, <laughs> yeah. that sucks. No, we don't want." It. And you're like, "Wait, whoa! How can you be so for one thing and then?" But we dance this now. Like, do I want Marie Stopes, who probably did more for the sexual health of Britain, to be canceled or taken off the stamp? I'm not saying that. I'm not. We're not saying that about Frederick Douglass. Mm-mm. I don't think, right? No. Like, but we are saying everything that they did. Like, I think even if it's at a time where it's more or less accepted i don't think i've ever said cancel anybody except for woody allen or roman polanski or any of those those jerk offs from the the hollywood world. right but i'm not saying to go back and change history books necessarily but i just want to make sure that people know that this is out there particularly everything that i'm and everything that we're going to be talking about from here on out fibs is almost all quotes and i'm going to read them slow so i don't fuck them up and i think that the quotes are astounding they're, they're fucking astounding to me, and that's what makes it interesting. Yeah. Make your own idea whether or not you want to throw away your, your Stopes book if you own one. Mm-hmm. You know, If you own the stamp, it's probably worth a lot of money. I, I toss yeah. it because I believe so, so strongly that – I think it's equally shocking that the next person I was going to mention was H.G. Wells. I'm skipping ahead of him now to mention Helen Keller. Helen Keller was fucking – Helen Keller was deaf and blind. She's dented. Helen Keller's fucked. Right. I mean, she was born, I think, at, at, at two, she'd gotten some sort of uh, disease which caused her to lose maybe her hearing in her side. I think she was born fully functional as far as that goes, but then lost it. Correct. She's fucked. She's yeah. dented. She's thrown off the hill by the 300. She was in defense of eugenics. She once wrote, or however she wrote, our puny sentimentalism has caused us to forget that a human life is sacred only when it may be of some use itself to the world. Right. This is what she fucking wrote. She also called for physicians' juries for defective babies who would then vote on which children would be kept alive and which children would not. It is the possibility of happiness, intelligence, and power. Happiness, intelligence, and power that give life its sanctity. And they are absent in the case of a poor, misshapen, paralyzed, an unthinking creature. It's fucking Heron. That's wild. Keller said that allowing a defective child to die was simply a weeding of the human garden that shows a sincere love of true life. That's fucking bad, Vibs. I mean, Helen Keller. 
Helen Keller needs help to wipe her ass. She like, does. And she's telling, she's saying people right. should be dead. Miracle worker, when she fucking signed that she was pumping water or something like that. Biggest thing. Like, she would have been one of the ones that was destroyed. So there's a, a hypocrisy. Put that on the bingo thing. I like saying hypocritical and hypocrisy and whatnot. I'm going to go backwards and go to H.G. Wells. I like H.G. Wells. I read The Time Machine. I read The um, Invisible Man. I never read The Island of Dr. Moreau, but I saw the terrible movie. And I've read War of the Worlds. Right. I mean, these these aren't fucking obscure pieces of, of literary you know things. These are big ones. Right. John? Secretly, that that movie, The Island of the Dr. Moreau, is actually awesome. Well, yeah, it's, little, I mean, it's so bad. That little guy coming around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Who's in that? It's uh, Val Kilmer. Val right? Kilmer. Yeah. 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 I can't remember who the Marlon other guy Brando. Is. Marlon Brando. You're damn right. It was fucking old, Marlon Brando. Old Marlon Brando. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Is that where they like pick him in the bubbles and they take him places? No, 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 no. This was one the Island Dr. Moreau. They were doing genetic testing on oh. this island. So it was like wolf boys and shit like that. It was actually, oh, you're right. I think I think you is even in the movie Absolutely it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can see eugenics going through the time machine, through Invisible Man, through Moreau, and also through War of the Worlds when you think about it. Is there somebody that we mention in this podcast more than Winston Churchill? I mean, boozers. We mentioned his mom. Yeah, I didn't know that. That was one thing I didn't know, that she was a bit of a floozy. Yeah, and she had the tattoo around her wrist. The mm-hmm. Manhattan might have been named after him. He had a letter that allowed him to drink through Prohibition whenever he visited. He smoked so many fucking cigars. He did. Like, the guy was the man. He's known as the man who stood up to Adolf Hitler. Historian A.J.P. Taylor, who's my favorite historian, described him as the savior of our country, and he was also extremely pro-eugenics. This is what he said in 1910 memo. Uh-oh. Winston Churchill warned the unnatural and increasingly rapid growth of the feeble-minded and insane classes, coupled as it is with the steady restriction among the thrifty, energetic, and superior stocks, constitutes a national and race danger which is impossible to exaggerate. I feel that the source from which the stream of madness is fed should be cut off, sealed up before another year passes. That's not as damning. Right, He didn't mention Chambers, and he didn't mention it, but he roundabouted said that the madness is overtaking the sanity, and the madness needs to be cut out at the root. I'm not going to dive any deeper because I don't want to fuck with him too much. Yeah, Because well, I'm going to do something I'm, on him. I'm trying to defend him. This was, a, right. this was 1910. This is before World War I. This is a young Winston Churchill. Young, yeah. It was probably, you know, it was probably a young uh, Frederick Douglass. This is a young Winston <laughs> Churchill. They were just talking out the side of their mouth. Winston Churchill, as you guys may remember, was canceled this past summer by Today's Society. Remember that whole thing? I don't remember it. Oh, yeah. They knocked down a statue in, like, England. Fuck. Oh, yeah. I mean, they might have a few. I remember reading about it because I wasn't aware that he – a criticism of his was that he did not intervene in some sort of – I think it was India – where there was, um, I think there was a form of genocide going on in India, and he did not intervene. I think there was always some sort of like, what the fuck? Oh, are you looking at it, Large? Yeah. Well, we're only going to highlight the worst parts. You yes. Know, Swiss yeah. history with the church. Seems he has a murky past. We were talking about women warriors as part of the twisted history of bad bitches. I found this one. I like this one. There was a terrible movie out years ago. I think Lori Petty was in it. It was called Tank Girl. Lori Petty isn't shit compared to this one. And she's got a mouthful of a name. Mariah Vasilena Octabriskaya. Say it again three times real fast. Mariah Vasilena <laughs> Octabriskaya. Anyway, when Mariah's husband, I'll mention him, was killed fighting in World War II, she sold everything she owned. She bought a tank. 
She named it the fighting girlfriend and she set off to kill as many Nazis as humanly possible. That's fucking, that's hot. She grew up dirt poor in Crimea at the start of the 20th century. She was one of 10 children. There was rarely enough food to go around. Still, this woman had a love of politics and the military. So she had learned how to both drive and shoot a gun in case she could ever get the chance to fight for her country. And that's not something that typically happened with women in Crimea you know, pre-World War II. She married a guy, I'll tell you his name, Ilya, Ilya Oktobrskaya. Okay, Oktobrskaya, an army officer and the absolute love of her life. They couldn't have any kids, which is awesome, actually. They had each other and it's all Mariah had wanted. So when Ilya was called to fight for the Soviet Union in World War II, Mariah said, good luck, bid him farewell. After all, Russia was being invaded by Germany and they needed brave soldiers like this guy, Ilya. She was once quoted as saying, quote, marry a serviceman and you serve in the army. Is that Russian or is that, what am I doing? Mm, Russian one? It sounds German. Damn it. Sorry. Marry a serviceman and you serve, no, it's supposed to be female. All right. Marry a serviceman and you serve in the army. An officer's wife is not only a proud woman, but also a responsible title. So that's how she felt. She's very, very uh, patriotic. And then Mariah got the call. That's everyone's worst nightmare. Ilya was killed in battle. So following Ilya's death, Mariah wrote this letter to Joseph Stalin. My husband was killed in action defending the motherland. I want revenge on the fascist dogs for his death and for the death of the Soviet people tortured by the fascist barbarians. For this purpose, I've deposited all my personal savings, 50,000 rubles, to the National Bank in order to build a tank. I kindly ask you to name the tank Fighting Girlfriend and send me to the front line as the driver of said tank. Because his wife used to call her his Fighting Girlfriend. And Stalin got the letter and fucking agreed. So he made a tank and he made her go through several months of tank training, which was way more than most males had to go through. But it became clear that she could already drive and shoot, and she could also lob grenades like no other. She was just deadly. So she was sent to the fucking front line in her tank that she had bought. This is stark. On October, I love her. I never heard of her. On October 21st, 1943, her first fucking mission in fighting girlfriend was to help to block German troops on their route to Moscow. She maneuvered fighting girlfriend around a battlefield. She destroyed several anti-tank guns, a machine gun nest and a horde of enemy soldiers. But then her tank was hit by artillery fire. This is good shit. When fighting girlfriend was out of action, she was ordered by radio to stay in the tank until help arrived. But she didn't. She got out in the middle of a fucking war zone, and she fixed it because she was she was well-known, well-versed mechanic, and then leapt back into the tank and went back into the war. After hearing about this, she was promoted to sergeant. And Mariah and Fighting Girlfriend continued their steady stream of battlefield successes. Then, on January 17, 1944, the tank was hit again by a German anti-tank shell, this time in the tank tracks, and it was immobilized. Obruskbaya, whatever, jumped out of the fucking tank again, began to repair the track amid fierce like small arms and artillery fire. She repaired the track but was hit in the head by shell fragments and lost consciousness before she got back in the thing. After the battle, she's transported to a Soviet military hospital at Fastiv near Kiev, where she remained in a coma for two months, 
before finally dying on March 15, 1944. Rest in power. The following August, Oktoberskaya was posthumously made a hero of the Soviet Union in recognition of her bravery in the battles around Vitebsk. Okay? So that's a big thing. Purple Heartish type mm-hmm. ship, hero of the Soviet Union. They don't just give those out. And here's a little tidbit, I think the thing that makes it interesting. Years later, the U.S. National Public Radio, NPR, featured a cartoon of Oktoberskaya to a headline of a story about rejected princesses that Disney and other storytellers had ignored to acknowledge, saying that she was too butchy. Like the way she's actually not. If you look at pictures of her, she's she's not. She's actually quite attractive. Yeah, and she's she's a yeah, sexy little tank girl. But even <laughs> if not, even if she did have, you know, that, you know, um a turned eye and a hump, it doesn't matter. Like that story itself, I think not only transfers towards a Tarantino esque type film, which would be awesome, even though they would liberally use the N word, it also would do very well to teach girls that, hey, you know, there's girls like this. Her husband died. She supported the shit out of him. And as soon as she died, she sold everything, built a fucking tank, and went and killed many, many Nazis. There's not a better ending to that story, you know, unless, of course, she you know, didn't get hit in the head with some shrapnel going to a coma and die. But there isn't a better idea behind that story than the real life that had happened to her. So I don't know. No, she's like our Rosie the Riveter. Like, she wasn't, she's, she was tough. She was one tough bitch if you think about it and she was kind of butchy too but if you see the actual woman she was quite attractive also i mean look at all the pinups that were made after oh i do i love i know (laughs) i'm just saying like that's not butchy that's just ballsy and i think they're confusing the two tank commanders right like that's something that i don't think is on many women or men's resume that's what i want to be i want to be a tank commander one thing that would be on my resume would be a samurai Always wanted to be a samurai. Oh, God, I know. So I'm going to talk about samurais right now. I know I'm going to. And her name is Tomei Gozen. From the medieval period onwards, girls from samurai families can be trained as something called Ona Bugisha, which roughly translates as warrior woman. They trained in fighting, of course, as well in math and science. So these were insanely intelligent ladies. They could strategize for the military, and they could possibly single-handedly take down a group of men in hand-to-hand combat. Tomei Gozen, T-O-M-O-E Gozen was one of the most badass ladies of the 12th century. She was a 12th century samurai fucking warrior. She had an unparalleled collection of war trophies. And what do they look like? Ribbons? No. In the 12th century, war trophies came in the form of decapitated heads of enemies who had died at your hands. Tomei was around during Japan's Genpai War, which was a monumental civil war in Japan. And her fighting chops were so good that she made it into a leading commander for one of the armies by its leader, Lord Kiso. Lord Kiso was basically the emperor of Japan at the time. She never used a woman's najinata. A najinata is a pole weapon. It's like a long broomstick. And at the end, it has a mixture between an axe and a sword at the end of it. It has a blade at the end of it. And that's typically what women used when they had fought so they could stay a little bit away from the fray. Instead, she used a man's katana. Oh, man. Which is just the traditional uh, samurai, the curved sword. And it was said a thousand warriors were no equal to her. In 1183, this bitch, Tomei, and I say that in the most respectful manner. I remember when I first met Alex Cooper from uh, Call Her Daddy. I was like, what's up, bitch? And she's like, I was like, oh, man, I should have called you that. She was like, always call me that. And the same <laughs> way, I think this girl, Tomei, Go- 
Tomei goes in, goes in, and Alexander Cooper. Not a lot of parallels, except for the fact their Venn diagram is only both been called bitch by large. But anyway, so <laughs> in 1183, Tomei goes and led over a hundred thousand, no, over a thousand men into battle, and she regularly led huge forces of men into war. But once she led a smaller force of just 300, 300 little samurais into battle against 6,000 untrained infantry. And one of them, wasn't she pregnant in one of them? I don't know. Yeah, I think she was like, pregnant. I think she's pregnant in one of them. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not even like the most interesting thing. Like this 300 samurai, it's kind of fucking, there's 6,000 untrained infantry. And she emerged as only one of five survivors. So 6,300 go in and five come out. 6,300 go in, the fray, five come out, and one of them is this bro. Tomei's final battle was decided to who would actually get to lead Japan. It was a toss-up between her boss, Lord Kiso, and Kiso's cousin, Minamoto. Love those names. Kiso versus Minamoto, and the winner gets to rule Japan. Tomei's side lost, and there are two accounts of her death. Both assume, though, that she survived the final battle versus Minamoto's army. In some tales, it's said that Tomei retires from fighting and becomes a nun and lives to be 91. I hate that one. I hate that option. The second option, and believe me, she's more of a folk hero than anything else. She kind of has like a Davy Crockett feel to her. In others, when her Lord Kiso met his end on the battlefield, she carried his severed head. Somebody cut his head off. She carried his severed head into the ocean and drowned herself with it so that she could serve him in the afterlife. That's, that's a ride or die. I don't think you'd do that for me, but I'm not saying that you're, you're a samurai princess. Um, See the size of your head? I don't know if I could. <laughs> <Yeah>. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, hell of a bowling bag. Yeah. Need a second horse. <laughs> For this study, countries with the highest robbery rate, I found it interesting. And that study, according to the World Data Atlas, robbery just means theft from a person overcoming resistance by force or threat of force. So for that study in particular, the category includes muggings and bag snatching and theft with violence, but it excludes extortion and overcharging, like I had said. So I'm going to give you a study right now for countries with the highest robbery rate and know that this is a physical robbery rate, a smash and grab. Give me your fucking bag. Give me, you know, not I just charge an extra dollar, you know, at a festival for a bottle of water. And as far as those criteria go, South America is fucked. South America cannot get a good headline. Uruguay is number one with a bullet. As of 2018, which is the most recent, that I could find at least. The robbery rate in Uruguay, or Uruguay, it all depends on how much you want to be a douchebag, Uruguay was nearly a thousand cases per hundred thousand population. So one in a thousand gets um, robbed violently. Then Uruguay is followed by Brazil, Chile, Ecuador, and then someplace called Cabo Verde, which I just assumed was in South America since the rest of them are in South Central America. It's not. Uh, Cabo Verde is a small island country in the central Atlantic Ocean. It's 400 miles off the westernmost tip of Africa, and it has maybe only 500,000 people. But theft and burglary are very popular there, and most often the perpetrators 
of these crimes are by gangs of street children. So just know there's a place called Cabo Verde, which is 400 miles off the westernmost tip of Africa. Only has about 500,000 people stretched out over 10 volcanic islands. And there's roaming groups of children. And they're uh, robbing people by the dozens uh, in uh, festivals. Large, you travel a lot. Have you ever been mugged by a, a street youth? I've been mugged. I've been mugged. When I was a kid, I was mugged twice. And then as an adult, I was mugged once. So I've I've had my share of being uh, stuck up. Like, and when I say mugged as a kid, I had my bike stolen twice. I consider mm. that a mugging. And the first what? No, what? The kid beat the shit out of me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, geez, yeah. You led with the bike. Yeah. yeah. Well, you what do you think? Like, I went to a store and then all of a sudden, no, no. Like, I I was I wasn't going out like a punk, John. Okay. And so tw- so uh, one, I mean, I by the time I got home, you know, I I, I waddled home, uh, you know, my. Tear stained, swollen cheeks and stuff right, like now you're that. Just playing it up because I uh... no, no. It was it was it was very <laughs> your, very valiant. Your, your dad's what happened to you? <laughs> yeah. And then when I had gotten uh, mugged, it was in college. They did take a chain off me, and I got into a fight with a bunch of young uh, young youths. You got your chain snatched? And I got a chain uh... snatched. I snatched a couple of chains during it, like it was kind of weird. But I think they put it down because I had a chain snatched. When I, I had to go to court and testify against the guy, John. And I uh, spent the night in St. Joseph's Hospital in beautiful downtown South Bend, Indiana. Indiana. Great place. Um, so, yeah. So they put something because they robbed my chain. It, it became like some sort of robbery. Uh, so there it is. I've been mugged. <laughs> How about you, John? Counts. Mean Streets no, of Philly? I've no? I've been lucky enough. I've never been mugged. How about you, Jeff? They know who I am in Indianapolis. <laughs> they see my face and they, he's coming. They release doves like in training day. <laughs> That's why I don't go to Cabo Verde. And now we're going to go over to a guy who knows what these things are, my friend Tyler from The Water Coolest, and he's going to tell us some of the most recent stuff that has happened in the cryptocurrency world. But before we do that, I have to talk about one of my favorite products in the world, and that's 3G. I don't travel without this. So there is CBD, there is marijuana, and then somewhere in the middle of that, kind of cheating towards the marijuana side, there's something called Delta 8, and Delta 8 in Delta 8 products are done the best by 3Chi. And they use uh, US-made hemp, and it's done right here in the good old USA. I will tell you right off the bat, there is a psychoactive component to 3Chi's Delta-8 products. So to gotta, you got to use these fucking things res- um, with a little bit of restraint, uh, you low lives. I do the gummies, 25-milligram gummies, um, either black raspberry or the uh, watermelon ones. And 25 for my gigantic body is just right. I actually going down to one and a half because it's starting to build up some, uh, some resiliency to it. But anyway, you're going to have to go to 3chi.com. It's the number 3chi, 3chi.com. And you're going to use the code TWISTED2021 at checkout. And when you do that, you'll be able to get any of their Delta 8 vapes, gummies, tinctures, oils that can be used to make edibles. They actually have a line of edibles that are out now. Cookies, I haven't tried them yet, but I'm going to be trying them this week because I'm begging sales to give me some of these fucking things if I'm going to talk about them. But that's not important. You got to be 21 years or older to purchase. You got to promise me you're going to be responsible with it. And you got to go buy some 3Chi Delta 8 gummies. That's the ones that I'm pumping. 3Chi.com, Twisted 2021, and you're going to get 5% off your order. Let's talk about some weird crypto stuff. I happen to be reading your newsletter on Monday. And right away, you had two great stories that I didn't know of. 
One was this gentleman, um, which I'm going to bring up to Sam when we have him on next. This gentleman in Turkey who, uh, I guess he ran Thodex. Give me the breakdown on what the hell had happened there. Yeah, so so this guy, I'm, I'm not going to attempt the name. I'll probably butcher it. But right, right. So uh, founder and CEO of Thodex. Um, so it is a crypto exchange over in Turkey. Um, and there's been a lot of crackdown recently um, on crypto in, in Turkey. And I'm not sure if this guy took advantage of it or he'd been planning this for a while. But the basic gist of it um, is that this guy up and left with about $2 billion worth of clients crypto and headed over to Albania. Um, kind of the funny thing is CNBC has actually, uh, you know, reached out to him, was asking him questions about, you know, what he did. And he says, uh, you know, everything's on the up and up. The, the, the exchange is just down. But, you know, we've seen this dog and pony show before. Um, there's, there's a lot of, you know, for all the good that there is, you know, in crypto and, you know, the technology is amazing. And, you know, the inflation hedge is, you know, is, is pretty incredible for, you know, if you believe the Winklevi. Uh, but there, there certainly is a lot of opportunity for, for fraud. And I think it just comes down to the regulation, which, you know, is a bit of a catch 22, um, you know, because obviously the idea behind cryptocurrency is that there would be no regulation, uh, behind this, but yeah, the, uh, the, the moral of the story here is this guy ran off with about $2 billion worth of, of client money. I think that the exchange has since shuttered, um, and then actually, Actually, today um, there was another Turkish uh, Turkish crypto exchange that also folded. I don't have the full details on how much money uh, they took, but it's not looking too great over there uh, at the moment. But Turkey is the place. Like some people are like, why Turkey? Turkey is one of those places when all these uh, European currencies were falling apart and you heard about people who are on vacation in Greece trying to get money out of an ATM and they would only give them a 20 right? Banks were failing. I mean, it, it, it got pretty dire over there. So people in Turkey in particular, for the currency, for the cryptocurrency story, wanted it, right? Because they didn't believe in the, the idea behind cryptocurrency and that money is broken. Turkey and a good percentage of Europe was a good example of how, you know, currencies can be broken. So that's why these guys were able to build up these, um, these war chests. And then Farouk, Fatih Ozer, that's the Thodex guy. And he headed for the fucking hills. I mean, there's footage of him getting into a private jet going towards Albania. I think he had some briefcases with him. It seemed like a real, almost like Bond. Yeah, it's like a Bond villain type stuff. So, again, we we can get fucked doing anything, right? You can get fucked in the Boy Scouts. I'm going to stop making these things up. I'll be talking to a guy. Uh, you know, with Blockfolio is one of the places that I'm signing up for. And I'm going to ask him straight out. I don't like giving people like you my social security number, right? And I don't like to do it, particularly when uh, Quadriga CX in in Canada in 2019 went bankrupt after its CEO died, resulting in millions of dollars worth of digital assets being trapped in a digital wallet because right. this guy had died. And you hear those those horror stories about people losing everything in these digital wallets. Um, you know, the Mount Gox, the MTGOX, Mount Goxing, happened way back in 2014, which I'll get into again with Sam. You know, that, that, was, that was handling 70% of Bitcoin at the time, mm-hmm. and it just shut down. So there's, there's a fine line, I think, between centralization 
and regulation, right? So if you don't want to be centralized and you don't want to be regulated, then it's fucking grease paint on the eyes and the single shoulder pad and we're out there in the fucking wasteland. We were talking in depth about the worst types of deaths that you can have. Um, This is one of them. So Hisashi Uichi suffered radiation exposure during Fukushima. And it's a tale that many do not know, but it's arguably the most traumatic event in Japan's nuclear past, which I just spoke about. Obviously not as traumatic in body count, but just in documented torture. Uichi was a plant worker at the Takamura nuclear power plant. I'm sorry, this wasn't... um, I I said that he was there for Fukushima. This is totally different than Fukushima. He was a plant worker at plant worker. That was my Brooklyn coming out. A plant worker at Takamura nuclear power plant. Um, And his job was reprocessing uranium. And that's a job that requires tremendous amount of safety, knowledge, the right equipment. But a report put out by the World Nuclear Association determined that in addition to the company's workarounds of regulatory policies, unsafe transfer practices, and the use of outdated equipment, the workers at Takimura nuclear, nuclear Power Plant had minimal to non-existent training for many of the duties they were expected to perform, and they were performing those duties on outdated machinery. That's not where you want to cut uh, corners. Like if you're not changing the fryer oil at Arby's, you can get away with it. Mm-hmm. But if you're reprocessing uranium, with people who aren't trained and aren't using the correct equipment, it's a recipe literally for disaster. So this account is ripped from a Washington Post article. On September 30th, 1999, so again, not that far away, right, 22 years, as Uichi was pouring a potent solution of something called uranyl nitrate into a contaminant tank that was not equipped to handle the amounts of radioactive material it was meant to process, the tank reached critical mass, and a nuclear fission chain reaction developed. Okay, so Hisashi Uichi is pouring way too much uranyl nitrate into a containment tank that couldn't handle it. What does a nuclear fission chain reaction developing mean? It means that the nuclear shit literally hit the fan. There was a lone survivor of the event. There were three men present. The lone survivor was a gentleman named Yutaka Yukikawa. He corroborated what Yuichi later told investigators they witnessed at that exact moment. Three men were there. Only one survived. The other two didn't die right away, so we're going to get accounts from all three. I don't want you guys to get confused, but Yukikawa is a guy who was still around for a while. So this is what they witnessed at the moment. A loud banging noise and an intense blue flash as immense amounts of neutron beams and gamma radiation fill the room. Ah, the room's filling with neutron beams! <laughs> gamma radiation. Yeah. This type of shit that made Hulk. The sequence of events is detailed in a report issued by the International Atomic Energy Agency following the incident. So you can get all this shit online if you want. One of Yuichi's colleagues, this guy Yukikawa that I mentioned, was viewing the transfer from behind a desk about 15 feet away. The third gentleman in the room... Masato Shinohara stood a little closer than Yokokawa. I'm going to try to keep these names good for you. While Uichi had to extend a large portion of his body directly over this tank in order to perform the task. So he's bending over 
this containment tank that's about to have this nuclear fission chain reaction development, okay? So there's Yuichi very close. Not too far is Shinohara, and way back behind the desk is Yokokawa. He's like he's leaning over the sun, basically, right? He yeah. is, or it, and he doesn't Soon know it be. yet. Yeah. So there are three men at various distances away, which will account for the differing severity of the effects of the accident. But it's Yuichi that I'll try to concentrate on. By the time a rescue team was able to move him from the accident site after this blue explosion and bombardment with gamma rays, Yuichi had been exposed to 17 sieverts of radiation, more than twice of what is uh, commonly considered a fatal level of exposure. I haven't heard the word sievert since I was in college. I just know it's used to measure radiation. But if anybody wants to Google sievert, one of the things that Google tells you almost immediately is that one sievert, right, Mm -hmm. the unit uh, measurement for a dose of radiation, will cause illness if absorbed all at once. So if you get one of them in you, you're going to get ill. Sort of like I was after I got that first Moderna shot. I'll right. tell you, I was ill. And eight sieverts will result in death all the time, even with treatment. So one will get you sick, eight kills you. Yuichi absorbed 17 directly. He was leaning over it, and he got 17 right to the fucking chest, meaning Hisashi Yuichi Lived, was right? exposed to the highest amount of radiation any human has ever been exposed to in documented history. The extreme exposure led to Uichi experiencing dizziness, lightheadedness, nausea, vomiting profusely in the, decontamina- in the decontamination room before passing out. Dizziness, lightheadedness, and nausea, you know, with vomiting, that's not that. That's me with brown liquor, right? Mm-hmm. So this isn't that bad so far. Right. He gets blasted, like I said, with like X-Men creating capabilities of fucking gamma rays. And all he is is... Uh, Lightheaded and uh, nauseous. One of the other workers, Shinohara, who was farther away, he was the second furthest from the blast, displayed similar though milder symptoms directly following the tank's explosion. As I mentioned before, the third and furthest away, Yokokawa, survived what is known in nuclear power circles as a critical accident. When Shinohara, second from it, died six months later in April of 2000, that left Yuichi and Yokokawa. So Yuichi, the guy who was close, and Yokokawa, who was the guy furthest away. The middle guy died. Back to Yuichi. After being transported via helicopter to the National Institute of Radiological Services and put in a room for treatment and observation, he seemed remarkably stable for days afterwards and even joked around and talked to nurses about getting better and going home. This is unbelievable. However, it became clear that his ailments were not temporary and his condition was severe. Again, the highest amount of radiation any human has ever been exposed to in documented history, and he's playing grab ass with the nurses a couple of days later. Doctors did a micrograph of his bone marrow and discovered that his chromosomes were destroyed. He was fucking destroyed on a chromosome level, and his white blood cell count was completely depleted. That's when it hit the fan again. The doctors administered a number of treatments, including an early experimental test of stem cell therapy using Yuichi's sister's stem cells. And the options keeping Yuichi alive grew increasingly drastic as his condition deteriorated. And deteriorated it did. Again, we talk about what's the worst way to die. A lot of people say drowning. People say that drowning. I've heard it's euphoric. Is it? Yeah, that's what I've heard. What? 
Yeah. I love the fact that just he throws that out there like it's like it's fucking common knowledge. You, you're, I, heard you, it I thought it was painful. Before. No, I, I think you black out before your lungs explode. You know what I mean? So you just kind of pass out. And I love this. But yeah, no, I feel no, like okay I feel like it. the waves and the light would be nice unless you're killing yourself I, at night. I do hear it's the closest. It's often the example that people use when they cross over, right? Because you kind of like die, but if you get resuscitated and all of a sudden you're spitting up water – a lot of those people have said, like, holy shit, I saw the light. You know, mm-hmm. like I crossed over for a minute there. You guys, I lost you there. No, I'm with you. I'm <laughs> no, with you. you. It you was just so deep that I'm like, fuck yeah. You didn't lose me at all. It's just I'm because I always had the lungs exploding type thing. People say burn to death. I mean, there's so many different ways to die. I was say, people do say burn to death is, yeah. a, is yeah. probably the, mo- the most painful. I mean, when water and then I just think about the waterboarding aspect when people are very close to being drowned and then, you know, mm-hmm. there's nothing, you know, more terrifying, but, I guess. The thing about fire, too, though, most people die from smoke inhalation. It's right. very rare to be like, you know, like a wind you know put on like a wooden stake and have flames like literally burn you to death right. like that's kind of a different experience probably yeah, i think so um so anyway so this guy's deteriorating and i'm and the reason i made the point made the small left turn on the worst way to die this is because is he's about to have a bad time the radiation poisoning massively damaged his chromosomes as i said which in turn wreaked havoc on his internal organs causing organ failure and loss of bowel control okay Organ failure, loss of bowel control. I get it. It's happened to me. When they said he was just nauseous and puking earlier, I was yeah. a little surprised he didn't shit himself. Three you know weeks. I mean? Yes. Three weeks after the bla- – I shit myself twice when I have COVID. Thank you again, St. Anne. She's fucking best. Three weeks after the blast, his intestines start to hemorrhage and was given as many blood tran- – as many as bl- 10 blood transfusions over the course of 12 hours. So a half a day, he gets 10 blood transfusions because his intestines start to hemorrhage. His skin and flesh blistered and began to just fall off in front of doctors, and places where he'd lost skin were seeping blood and fluids. His wife recalls him bleeding out of his eyes like he was crying blood. He lost almost all of his body fluids in a single day, and more had to be pumped into him along with even more blood transfusions. In order to curb the loss of fluids through his skin, he was essentially leaking everything that was inside of him, and his skin was non-existent at this point, Doctors administer skin transplant. Unfortunately, the skin wouldn't adhere to his body because it was like trying to put a piece of American cheese on a wet ham. I made that up. (laughs) He was put in a coma for a short time when his symptoms became too painful for him. Two months after the accident, so this is two months after the accident, Uichi's body continuously hemorrhaged. His heart is working overtime for two months to pump enough blood through his body that's been given to him through so many transfusions. His heart averages 120 beats per minute, and the strain on it is fucking immense. On November 27th, his heart stops. He's resuscitated three times, despite begging for the suffering to end. And this is where it gets a little fucking weird. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, the doctor's measures kept getting more intricate and complicated, right? Their interest in studying Uichi's condition, symptoms, and reactions to treatment began to supersede their concern for his agony. So there was a point, an inflection point, as I like to say, where Uichi went from being a patient who they were trying to keep alive to now being a guinea pig who's being kept alive against his own will. He was essentially being kept alive in unending agony for the benefit of their research. The justification for keeping Uichi alive for such an extended period was the subject of heated debate following his eventual death. Scientists, medical professionals all claim that the data they collected from his case 
would be useful in the event of future radiation-based injuries, which isn't untrue, but still, you're doing it at the expense of a man who's in, whose skin fell off. Yeah. He's leaking. We, we did a thing on Bonnie and Clyde, and we said how they couldn't embalm them because they had so many fucking bullet holes, the formaldehyde was leaking from their bodies. This guy's fucking skin slid off. His internal organs were hemorrhaging. He's got fucking nothing to live for, and his heart is going like an absolute hummingbird for over a couple of months. Nearing the end, Uichi was literally begging the doctors to allow him to die, reportedly telling them, I'm not a guinea pig. Finally, a do-not-resuscitate order was put into effect, and when Uichi suffered a severe cardiac arrest and his vitals began shutting down, after an agonizing 83 days of hell, the doctors finally allowed Hisashi Uichi to die. A book called, and this is a perfect fucking name for the book, A Slow Death, 83 Days of Radiation Sickness, right? I mean, that's, that sums it up. Took it easy on the doctors, right? All these doctors involved did not get called out in this book. The company itself was called out for placing employees in such a dangerous work environment. I find the blast to be less interesting than what had happened after the blast. And this book, if you do take a look at it, you probably won't. It kind of gives the doctors a pass. The moral implications of Oichi's treatment took a backseat to the failures and business practices of the management running the facility, who were, of course, at fault. The company was cutting corners, like I said, so Oichi's agonizing death was a cautionary tale of corporate neglect and malfeasance. But the doctors and scientists who thought that studying the effects of the massive amounts of radiation on Oichi's body while ignoring his drawn-out and unbearable painful death need to be held accountable as well. And that's why I decided to tell the story starting off about Hisashi Uichi and what had happened to him when the nuclear shit hit the fan. Large, that, that story was a lot. That's not I, bad, right? Yeah, it was a lot. I never I, heard that story. That's a great story. Yeah. I need to relax now. His whole fucking skin fell off, right? What would be the best way for you to relax right now, Jeff? 3 chi. 3 chi. The year 1276 holds the record for the most popes. Maybe somebody will remember that. There were four popes in 1276. Gregory X was the first. He died in early January. Gregory X, so he dies. Pope Innocent V came up next, but he died five months later in June. So Gregory to Innocent V, that's two during 1276. Then Pope Innocent V died five months later in June. His successor, Adrian V, died five weeks into the job. That was number three gone. So then they brought in the fourth and final pope of 1276, and his name was John the 21st, who actually made it out of 1276. But he was the fourth pope in 1276. But he died in 1277. He died the following year when the ceiling of his new study fell in. He got hit by a ceiling. So they just built him a new study because all four popes kind of have their own study. So maybe they rushed his because there were so many goddamn popes dying that year. So they rushed his. And so the following year, like mid-year in May, I think it was. Yeah, May of 1277. Didn't even make it halfway through 1277. And he got crushed by the roof of his brand new study. So 1276, not a good year to be a pope. After his death, this last guy, John the 21st, it was actually rumored that he'd been a necromancer. A necromancer is somebody who communicates with the dead. Yeah, raises and that per- dead. Yeah. So perhaps his death had been an act of God, stopping him from completing some sort of heretical treatise. 
Nobody knows really, but allegedly that fourth guy to die in 1277 may or may not have been a necromancer. Being a necromancer is scary, and I don't think I can like chill out after that. That's yeah, yeah. Good. That's the only time I'm going to mention uh, necromancy. But one of the last questions I was going to ask um, before we got to the actual popes is what does Vibs call the pope when you finally get an audience with them? Which can happen, right? I mean, he's going to hear this and try to defend himself with me shitting on him for changing the shoes. So maybe he comes on next week and we, we go from Japanese serial killers to back to the Pope. Your holiness? Your holiness is a good one. That's the exact thing that you can call him. What else can you call him? Most Holy Father. You can call him Pope Francis. You can call him Papa Francesco. You can call him Bishop of Rome. You can call him Vicar of Jesus Christ. You can call him successor of the Prince of the Apostles. You can call him the Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church. You can call him the Primate of Italy. Sounds a little weird. You can call him the Archbishop and Metropolitan of the Roman Province. You can call him the Sovereign of the Vatican City State. You can call him the Servant of the Servant of Gods. But what they would like you to call him, Vibs, is Your Holiness. You hit it right on the head. Or Most Holy Father. So those are the two things that you would go with. I would probably go with Papa Francesco. Papa Francesco is, is I mean, you got to be like a Marinelli brother or something. You got to be Giuseppe Paolo Marinelli, just like measuring his inseam and all the call, all the call him Papa Francesco. Papa Francesco. <laughs> right. I assume I'm not right. going to be that close. <laughs> no, probably not. Some people genuflect. They say you should genuflect. If you get close enough, you might, you may try to kiss the ring of the fisherman. Although when he was vice president, Joe Biden refused to kiss the ring of John Paul II, saying it was undignified. That's not a dig on Biden, but it did happen. Conservative Catholics who routinely accuse this this new pope of straying from doctrine and tradition now suspect that this age-old ring kissing is also in his sights to be ended also because he's been in crowds where he's refused to give people his ring. It seems like he's no bueno on the shoes. He's no bueno on the this. He's no bueno on the ring kissing. Oh, and by the way, whenever a pope comes into a room, you would think like the Carmelango or some guy would say, ladies and gentlemen, a Papa Francesco, the vicar of Jesus, the successor, the supreme pot, the primate, the arch, like, you know, like give the whole thing. That never happens. The Pope is never introduced because you're just supposed to know who the most powerful man in Catholicism is. So very rarely is he uh, introduced and he never insists on it. It's just one of those things where, and again, that's kind of a flex, right? No, you don't got to introduce me. Everyone knows who I am. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know who I am. You it's like me. LeBron. And we're going to close on this. I got one more story, uh, Vibs. I'm going to close on this. Travis, right? Yes. Yes. So Dante was talking about what he wants to do as we're going forward. He wants to do one of these with us. I said, sure, let's talk about it tomorrow. I was like, I'm actually taping tomorrow. Shit, what are you taping? I said, oh, I'm taping Twisted History of uh, Animal Attacks with Vibs. He's like, oh, do you ever hear Eddie's Eddie's monkey attack? So right away I'm thinking – and by the way, I love – Barcelletti. Mm-hmm. I love those guys. I say man. it all the time. All I can think about is somewhere along the line, Eddie got attacked by a monkey. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, I relish the idea. I couldn't. And I said, Are you kidding me? Can you tell me this thing? I'm texting Dante. By the way, texting in the middle of the night while I had the sewage, the sewage pipe backed up. So I wasn't really chatty. Mm-hmm. 
He said, I can't even do it justice. He's like, it's such a fucked up story. You have to ask Eddie himself. He did it on Dog Walk, right? I have no idea. Oh, I have no right. fucking clue, John. I didn't know. So I text Eddie and I text Chief. I said, listen, I'm doing this tomorrow with Vibs. Is there something I, I should know? Eddie, did you get attacked by a monkey? And they're like, no, no. No, that's uh, – Eddie's like, no, no. I'm just fascinated with the story of uh, Travis. And and then it all made sense. Like I love the story. So we had it down already. Eddie had uh, gone through the whole thing for me. And uh, so to yeah. set the record straight, Dante being a very vague uh, texter, Eddie was never attacked by a monkey. Although the thought of that is very oh. funny. Yeah, I know. Someday. Uh, yeah. Mar- March 25th, 2020, they did it on Dog Walk. Oh, did they? Yeah. And he's going to do something else with it too. He says he wants to he wants to resurrect it at some point. But until then, if you guys are wondering what we're talking about, it's Travis the Chimp. He was a 14-year-old male chimpanzee that appeared in, like, Old Navy and Coca-Cola commercials. He was in The Man Show with, like, Jimmy Kimmel and shit like that. I love his work. I love (laughs) Travis's work, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's 14 years old, by the way. He was adopted when he was only three days old by a couple named Sandra and Jerome Harold. They lived in Stamford, Connecticut. The Harold's only child, a daughter, had died in a car crash years before, so the chimp really filled the void. He was very human-like. He was taught to use keys to open doors. He drove cars. Drove cars. He'd have a glass of wine with dinner. That's what this fucking chimpanzee did. He could uh, make a pork chop in his cast iron skillet. Do you call them chimpanzees or chimpanzees? See the little inflection I did there? A chimpanzee or a chimpanzee? Chimpanzee. A chimpanzee? I just call them chimps. You don't emphasize the pans. They just say chimpanzee. Chimpanzee, not, not chimpanzee. chimpanzee, yeah, like pansy, <laughs> like a chimpanzee, pansy, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, we'll go chimp from now on. Uh, the Herald's owned a uh, tow truck business, and so uh, <laughs> Travis would ride shotgun on jobs. He was very uh, friendly, and the customers absolutely loved him. Two thousand three was the first incident. Um, Travis got out of one of the trucks, and he couldn't get back in. That's called animal control, and it took him a couple hours to get uh, him back into the truck. No harm, no foul. But the event led to Connecticut passing a law prohibiting people from owning primates that weigh more than 50 pounds and requiring owners of exotic pets to apply for a permit. The heralds were grandfathered in. They could own Travis even though he's heavier than uh, 50 pounds because they had him for so long. But Connecticut decided to step up and try <laughs> you know, to I don't stop know if, any future ownerships. If the details on this are exactly true, but they're very specific. Did you read this about how it sounds like he was sitting at a light and he was not driving, and right. he was hit by he was hit by something through the window that startled him, yep. and then he chased the man. I actually think that that's fair. It's, I would do that if I was hit with an object sitting in a red light. Yeah, like I, I didn't think – like the 2003 incident does not paint a bad picture of Travis. Travis seemed to be a very good monkey for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. I read a different account that just made it sound like he just decided to – you know, get out of a moving car. So you're <laughs> saying Travis is doing it in self-defense? Is that well? I mean, the initial like if, if, heart if you're going to throw something at a monkey, a, right. a chimpanzee, right. and he gets out and goes after you, you know, reap what you sow. Yeah, right. Steve Irwin, you reap what you sow. Uh, that was in 2003. Connecticut tried to pass a law. It did pass a law, but these guys were um, were grandfathered in. 2004. The dad, Jerome Harold, died of cancer, leaving Sandra alone with Travis. And trying to run the business. Sandra treated Travis like her son. She ate with him. She bathed him. She slept with him. Not in a weird way. We're not doing bestiality here. On the business end, Sandra received a tremendous amount of help from a very close friend whose name was Charla Nash. I believe it's pronounced Charla. If the H is silent and it's Carla, I appreciate it. I apologize, but I don't really care. So Sandra received a tremendous amount of help from this woman. 
She was a receptionist for the towing company, but would also help out whenever Sandra needed help at home. Sometimes that meant helping out with Travis. Here's the day, John, where it doesn't get so uh, – you can't um, – well, you can at the end. We'll, we'll get to it. February 16, 2009. Sandra was having a tough time controlling Travis. He took the car keys. He let himself out of the house. He wouldn't come back in. Sandra, needing help, called Charla. Charla came right over. To help lure Travis back into his cage, Charla picked up one of Travis's favorite toys, his Elmo doll. And the moment Travis saw Charla, he immediately attacked her. He ripped off her hands, lips, nose, eyelids, and the upper part of her jaw. He also destroyed the midsection of her facial bone structure, causing significant brain tissue injuries. I kind of went from zero to 60 there. Mm. Charla showed up, shook Elmo at Travis, and instead of coming into the house, Travis went apeshit on her, ripped off her hands, he ripped off her lips, ripped off her nose, eyelids, and upper part of her jaw. Sandra attacked Travis to try to get him off of Charla. She hit him with a shovel several times and finally stabbed him in the back with a butcher knife several times and only made him more angry. So Sandra went inside and called 911. And the 911 call. Sandra, it's fucking wild. So there's 911 operators trying to figure out what's going on while Sandra is saying, send somebody. He's killing my girlfriend. And the chimp's going crazy in the background. And she's like, bring a gun. You got to shoot this thing. It's absolutely crazy, this 911 call. Travis viciously attacked Charla and then terrorized Sandra for 12 more minutes before the police arrived. When the police finally got there, Travis attacked the police car. He smashed the passenger side window and the mirror. Then he calmly walked over to the driver's side, opened the door, and bared his bloody teeth at police officer Frank Chiafari. So Chiafari fired four shots at Travis. Travis, now full of bullets, screamed, ran back into the house, and died in front of his cage. Once Travis took off, the officers and paramedics immediately ran to Charla Nash, who was a mess. She had no face. Her hands were off. There were thumbs and fingers all over the place. He was ripping them off one at a time. Frank called out to Charla, hoping she was unconscious, but she reached out with the stumps of her arms. She was alive. Charla was rushed to the emergency room. Doctors were able to reattach her jaw and right thumb. However, an infection from Travis caused Charla to lose both of her eyes when the doctors had to remove both of them. The medical staff who tended to Charla after the accident needed support and grief counseling since the attack had been so gruesome and brutal. In March of 2009, Nash's family filed a $50 million lawsuit against Sandra Harold. It had been reported by police in the news that Sandra Harold told them that a few minutes before the attack, she'd given Travis some tea with a crushed up Xanax in it, and it was later confirmed by a toxicology report. The animal hadn't been prescribed Xanax by any kind of physician. It was given at Sandra's discretion. Xanax is known to cause paranoia, suicidal thoughts, impaired memory, and judgment. It's not 3G. It's fucking Xanax. Travis was out of his mind, hopped up on drugs given by Sandra. 
Sandra claimed Travis may not have recognized Charla because she was sporting a new hairstyle and driving a car that wasn't her regular one. But it wasn't that. He was all drugged up. In May of 2010, Sandra, Sandra Harold, passed away. In 2011, the attack person, Charla, had two transplant surgeries to her face and hands. The transplants were successful, but since she developed pneumonia, the hands had to be removed again due to poor circulation. Fuck, this girl had a tough one. In 2012, Nash settled with Harold's estate, but for only $4 million. She then attempted to sue the state of Connecticut for $150 million, but her claim was denied. This poor girl just got away with $4 million. That's terrible. In 2016, her body began to re- uh, reject the face transplant. I think the face started to peel off. Yeah. And then since then, she kind of felt she had like a whatever it was, uh, you know, like a GoFundMe page for a while, mm-hmm. which I think is now defunct. But since then, she kind of fell off the radar. But anyway, that's one of the more gory things that you're going to hear about animals. Vibs and I are animal lovers. But Vibs and I respect animals. And I think that's the whole idea. The reason they call wild animals is because they get wild. And we told you about some of the wilder ones today. We didn't get to a lot of them, I understand, because there are a shitload more. But we got to as many as we could in our time allotted. I hope you guys enjoy the twisted history of animal attacks. Vibs, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, John, thanks for doing all the stuff. Annie, thank you for uh, giving us all the research to get us through this sick shit like this. And we'll see you guys next week. 